Hello and welcome to the Undead Wookiee podcast, episode 43, Folk Horror. The Undead Wookiee is a fortnightly-ish podcast, focusing on horror and sci-fi, but there will be times where we dip into other genres, because here at the Undead Wookiee, our nerdiness knows no bounds. Hello, I am your host, Hugh Lloyd, and like I said, this is episode 43, Folk Horror. Now, this episode runs longer than our normal episodes, and we're going to be looking at three films in particular, which we feel highlight the genre best. We're looking at uh, Witchfinder General, Blood and Satan's Claw, and The Witch. Now, uh, of course, because it runs longer, uh, there won't be any What the Wookiee Watch section this episode. So I'm going to play the main theme too. Then I'm going to introduce our very, very special co-host for this episode's I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a very, very, very special one, and I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed recording it. So I hope you enjoy. And, ladies and gentlemen, or should I say, brethren and sisters, I am joined on this day of our Lord <laughs> by, uh, and uh, you know, just to give you an idea of, because obviously you can't see this, is I am in my full uh, pilgrim uh, Puritan regalia, including matching uh, frilly collar and stovepipe hat. Um, I say, you know, that I've, what I've done is I've just taken a uh, a traditional uh, children's Welsh ladies uh, outfit, and I'm wearing that. Um, it's deeply, deeply disturbing. <laughs> deeply disturbing. It's more Leatherface in uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two than uh, than Puritan. But I'm go- but I'm going with it now. I am joined by two very, very special guests, making his long-awaited return uh, because last time I think you're wrong. We, we, it was the Suspiria episode, and of course that's correct. We've We've had a theme running. We've had a theme of witchcraft running for our for our appearances. Yes, yes. Of course, we are talking to the lethal one, the one, the only, Mister Liam Jones. How are you, sir? I'm not too bad, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I'm okay. Just adjusting my my bonnet. And <laughs> next to me is a man who's keeping up the long traditions of hangovers on this show. <laughs> the one, the only, the mighty Jay. How are you, sir? I am surprisingly better than I thought I would be at this time of the... I was going to say morning, but it's not, is it? No. I'm very well, thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Now, we were just talking off air, um, and we were saying, you know, you, you kind of dive down a rabbit hole on this one. And, uh, we, of course, we're going to be discussing uh, the Witchfinder General. We are going to be looking at Blood and Satan's Claw, and then we're going to be looking at The Witch from 2015. Um, and and having a general discussion. I don't, can you have a general discussion about folk horror? That is, uh, it, it's, a quite, it's, quite a, it's quite a varied topic. Well, certainly, I think if you've got a few hours for evening, you might be able to have a general discussion on it, but you need to take a day out, I think. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. Jay, you were just looking, uh, you gave a brilliant example of uh, something from the BFI. <coughs> yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll read it again quickly then. So um, it's Adam Scoville who's written a book on folk horror. 
Um, and this is a BFI piece about where to begin with folk horror. So if you're not familiar, it's probably a good place to start. But he says, um, despite uh, what its simplistic description implies, from the emphasis on the horrific side of folklore to a very literal horror of people, the term's fluctuating emphasis makes it difficult to pin down outside a handful of popular examples. So, as I said earlier, uh, clear as mud. Yes. Why use one sentence when you can use 50? <laughs> yes. And, and of course, Liam, you were talking uh, as well, you know, because we were uh, Skype, the the demons of said Skype play trickery Struck upon us. Again. The fiend of Skype. <laughs> I'm going to be doing this a lot. I've driven my wife very close to divorcing me this week. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so you were talking as well about the difference, because obviously there's, there's numerous, numerous links. Um, and lots of lots, you know, and you read different books on horror and you read different things. People mm. tie folk horror in with sort of occult movies. Um, some people will tie it in as British, uh, as British folk horror. Or um, I like Mark Gattis' description of it as sort of um, home county horror. Mm. Yes. I do. I, I, that, that kind of fit, fitted quite well with me. But, you, but Liam, you spoke about uh, something called hauntology. That's correct. It's a, um, it's originally a sociological theory, but a cultural theory originating from the late 80s by Jacques Derrida. Originally, it was more of a political theory about the whole idea that um, it was coined at the end of the Cold War, but history had ended. So Derrida more or less said, well, we're going to be haunted by the past in that case. So like the ghosts of our past will come back to haunt us if there's no future. And a, a critical theorist called Mark Fisher, who um, sadly passed away last year, he started studying it himself, and he went through the. He came to the conclusion that you see hauntology in a lot more examples. For example, in nineteen um, seventies British culture, with like films, public information films, television, and music. So these sort of ideas start cropping up again, and they've sort of left as the Fortean Times once said in an article, they've left a haunted generation. So there's this generation of like children who were haunted by these images from the past of all these sort of like folk of these elements like strange folklore from like things like children of the stones you know like the music of things like doctor who and all that and you know just this very odd and disquieting sort of element 70s culture had like you can see it in things like dark waters you know the, the infamous public information film well and you can also see it in some of the kids tv at the time is downright horrifying yeah well i mean <laughs> you can see this interesting segue into the look at this Look at this. We, we, we were talking history. We're talking folk. And we've even got a proper segue in. Because, Jay, obviously, you spent a bit of time um, writing about um, sort of, particularly the, the sort of, uh, the, the, those infamous, terrifying um, public information uh, adverts yeah. that traumatize children. And I think, dark, <laughs> I think the Dark Water one is a perfect example of that. It is. There, there are a great number. I was born in the. I was going to say early, but let's say mid seventies. <laughs> so I kind of grew up around this stuff, and I, <clears throat> I was exposed to a lot of these films at school when I was like eight, nine years old. They wouldn't show them to kids nowadays. Things like Apaches, um, horrible. Yeah, dark, yeah, it is. It, I watched it again recently, and I'm like, this is terrifying. You shouldn't be showing anyone this <laughs> under the age of eighteen. It's horrendous. But there's something about those films that 
they, they, they still unnerve me now. And yet I, I, I take a sort of comfort in that kind of weird lost seventies mm. era and the films around it. It feels like I've always felt like the eighties is, is where things went absolutely kind of bonkers with fashions and so on and music and and the 60s was that kind of generation of real change and the 70s is like the lost child where it kind of the 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 decade wandered around like a bit of a ghost and i think the film's music and everything around it sort of reflects that yeah well that's the whole hauntological side of it then because it is that sort of it is sort of the 70s is a decade which is still haunting us even people who weren't born then yeah can still sort of recognize those characteristics you know that's how strange media was in the 70s you know but there was yeah. a lot of very bizarre programs which you would you'd net you know you can't imagine ever being made in any other decade well i mean children of children of the stones um is it you know is is an inc- is it bizarre bizarre program hmm. um you know the uh, the tripods um mm. You know these, all of these sort of, um, you know, the, the the television of the seventies, um, and, and I think one of the, you know, one of the great sort of, um, uh, I don't know, whether you can call it spoofing or pastiches, you know, is, is Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Yeah, oh, that's more in the eighties that is, but a good example of it. Though. Has anyone here watched as Inside Number Nine? Yes. Yep. Yes. There was the Christmas special, which is pretty much a direct tribute to nineteen seventies horror television really it's it's a direct tribute it's even filmed as yeah. it was with the same sort of cameras that sort of graininess and that you know but that's the snuff the one wasn't it pits. was it the snuff film that's one? right yeah yeah oh yeah. Yes. just one. just my I, and i mean yeah. you know it's just you look at the influence of you know you know you know the folk horror uh movement or genre you look at the influence on the league of gentlemen um oh, and of and and the spin-off work from that. I mean, um, recently um, I listened to the uh, ra- I suppose it's a radio play for all intent of Blood on Satan's Claw, okay. um, yeah. by Mark Gattis and Rishi uh-huh. Smith, and it's mm. absolutely superb. It's absolutely superb, and it builds yeah, it builds nicely on the film. And I think yeah. uh, we'll come into that. You know, we'll talk about it when we come on to mm. that. Uh, because it fills in some of the gaps. It fills in some of the gaps quite nicely, you know, in the film. Um, mm. But I think one thing that you can honestly say about the public information films um, in the 70s and, you know, the three films that we're going to watch, uh, we're going to watch, <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, on this episode, um, is how well they're shot. Well, certainly. They've got a very strong sense of place as well. Yeah. And, you know, the because they're obviously they're not made for an awful lot of money. And the, you know, the the quality of cinematography um, in all three of these films, and they're all shot in very unique ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it gives them, you know, it does give them this quite distinctive edge. Um, So... Sorry, Jay, what were you going to say? No, 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 go on, go on. I was going to talk about the, actually, I will just very quickly, we were talking very briefly earlier about um, The Witch being more mainstream, but I think, I see all of these as kind of art house films. Oh, they're very art house. Yeah. 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 I mean, they're smaller, they're more experimental to a certain extent, um, they don't pander to that mainstream requirement for a happy ending. I just, I feel that although... The witch. Uh, obviously, we're going to get on to talk to that, talk about that a bit more. Although the witch is possibly more mainstream, in just by virtue of being 
a very popular film. Mm, that's I, what I really I'm see, referring to. Yeah, yeah. I really see all three as as more more uh, more our house and smaller in that aspect. Yeah. Sorry. No, and, and all three of these as well have stunning soundtracks. Mm. Oh, certainly. Absolutely yeah. stunning soundtracks. Yeah. Um, so let's jump in and let's take a look at the Witchfinder General. With the tranquility of rural England shattered by civil war, evil was spawned at a time of strife in the land. Take him, Stern. Look for the devil's marks upon him. Right. How about you, Duke? Pounding the innocent in violence and terror, this evil man showed no mercy in the pursuit and interrogation of his victims. He was called the Witchfinder General. And amidst the horror of the witch hunt, a story of tender young love. Didn't your uncle just say you must early to bed? He did. And isn't he a wise man? He is. But even their innocence is cruelly corrupted by the vile touch of the Witchfinder General. My motive in coming here was to find the truth. Vincent Price is the Witchfinder General. Lust and greed were his only gods. The money from the magistrate. Nine guineas in silver. Good. Now we can leave. Ian Ogilvie as Richard Marshall. He stood alone against the forces of devilish destruction. And tis in thy sight, O Lord, that I hereby swear that shall not rest from the pursuit of his murderers till they stand before thee, ready to answer to thee for their sins. Rupert Davies as John Lowe's. Master Marshall, welcome. Patrick Weimark as Oliver Cromwell. Amongst the most pleasurable aspects of victory, gentlemen, is the opportunity it affords to reward valour. It ranks almost with good food. And Wilfred Bramble. And uh, what line of business might you be in? God's business. Witch finding. Witch finding. Oh, that's nice. That's very nice. And introducing Hilary Dwyer as Sarah. Filmed in authentic detail and photographed with piercing realism against the actual background of peaceful villages and quiet countryside. Never has England looked so beautiful, yet been so violent. I'm your man friend. John Stern, they call me. Man's inhumanity to man portrayed on the screen so vividly that you flinch. So real that you too will fear the Witchfinder General. Be the first to see it. Be the first to talk about it. The Witchfinder General. So... The Witchfinder General, of course, was directed by, um, I suppose he's become sort of, a, quite almost sort of, he's reached legendary status, hasn't he? Uh, Michael Reeves. Um, yeah. Uh, quite, a tra- quite a tragic character in some respects. Um, very, very intense personality from what I gather from, you know, when you listen to anybody talk about mm. him. But incredibly talented. Very um, driven person. Yes. Um, it was written by Tom Baker. Um, not, that, not that one. Not not that one. No, the other Is Tom he Doctor Who link. Oh no, no that's actually. Well, we will have a few of them in this podcast when you get to Blood and Satan's Claw. Yes. Um, yeah, we'll come on to that. And Frank Spencer. Yeah, in Blood and Satan's Claw. Some others do have. We'll come on to that later. Um, but of course, uh, it stars um, Vincent Price, Ian Ogilvy. Uh, Rupert Davis, Hilary Heath, Robert Russell, Nick Henson, uh, Tony Selby, Brandon Kay, Godfrey James, Michael Be- uh, Baint, 
Um, Anne Tyrod. I love Anne Tyrod because she, she was, for, I think in the 70s, she was the go-to person for some old woman. Um, mm. And, of course, we had Patrick Weimark appear in this one as uh, Mr. And Oliver. also... Stepto himself, Wilfred Bramble. Yes. Yeah, I, I, was... <laughs> I watched it the day before yesterday. I was like, wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> He's amazing in this. It, it, <clears throat> it has, it, you know, that's the thing with these sort of, you know, and it's the same with when you look at, uh, you know, any kind of the, the some of the Hammer films. Um, you know, I think, is it um, Taste the Blood of Dracula where Dennis Waterman appears in it? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. You know, Minder's Scars of Dracula, I think oh, it is. Yeah, Scar- yeah, Scars of Dracula, sorry. Yeah. You know, it's Minder. And I know it sounds awful, but I wondered if he'd wrote the theme tune and sung the theme tune. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. You'd be forgiven for thinking that the British film industry only had a couple of actors in it at the time. Because yeah. it was always the same people turning up in the same films. Yes. But Wilfred Bramble essentially plays like an early incarnation of Steptoe in this. He's yes. all kind of gurning and suggestive. Yes. And yeah. Like, <laughs> Although it might be Around about the same time, or maybe about a year or two before, perhaps. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's 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 definitely the same era in terms of mm, yeah, years. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, the other person who um, really, really needs to be mentioned in this is the cinematographer, is John uh, Cochlean. Mm. Uh, oh, is it Cochlean? 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 Mm. Something. Um, but he his the sense of movement that he gives this film. Um, is it's because it almost in, in certain elements has almost a bit of a swashbuckling feel to it. Oh, certainly so. Well, some my when I was in university, we did study the British horror film at one point, and one of the things we looked at was Witchfinder General. And we said one of the comparisons made it quite often is the searches. Like they said, it's almost the British equivalent to a Western in some ways. Yeah, yeah. And especially with the music as well, because a lot of that kind of swashbuckling music uh, that's played, like incidental music during the film, is yeah. played alongside like Matthew Hopkins or Ian Ogilvie. Sorry, not Matthew Hopkins. Vincent Price or yeah. Ian Ogilvie on, on horseback. Rather exactly. Than long, you've got that. Yeah. yeah, I noticed that the other day. It's interesting. Now, I think I'm a big Vincent Price fan anyway. And, I mean, he is, you know, he's very much known for his sort of over-the-top performances. And when you look at the particular the Edgar Allan Poe type films that that he did with Roger Corman, um, interestingly enough, they renamed this The the Conqueror Worm. uh, Yes. For its release to cash in on the Poe uh, successes. Yeah, on the Roger Corman films. Yeah, yeah. There's no connection whatsoever than Vincent Price. No, yes. (laughs) And I think there are. I think there are certain price films where he, you know, he's just he's pretty much, you know, even in the in Batman where he pops up as Egghead, he's still sublime. He's still he's, he's still mm. he's, he's just a you know he's just he's just wonderful to watch. But I think in this in the Witchfinder General, and I think in the Last Man on Earth, I think they, he gives genuine acting performances. And I think oh, certainly. And I think in the Witchfinder General, he gives his best acting performance. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it'd be hard to argue that, to be fair. I'd have to agree with you on that one. And, you know, he is... I know him and Reeves clashed massively yeah. uh, on this, uh, on the set of this, and it sort of led to some sort of very sort of uh, legendary uh, stories uh, being sort of... Uh, that, that, you know, people regale uh, whenever this film is mentioned. 
Um, and I think one of them is where he talks about him moving his head around too much. And he's I'm not. Have you, have you, have you heard that one? But it's, I've got one I've heard, which is I think is my favorite feuding moments in director and actor. Go for apparently, it. Apparently, during the shoot, you know, apparently, you know, they were clashing constantly because they just did not get along with each other at all. Like the Price's method of acting was so different from what Reeves wanted. So yes. obviously, they're going to clash quite frequently. And at some point, Price turned around to Reeves and told him, "He said, young man." You know, I have made over a hundred films. How many have you made? And replied, three good ones. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently, from that moment, apparently Vincent Price had a lot more respect for him after that because he sort of said, "I never didn't expect someone to speak to me like that." Yeah, he he did post film as well after he um after he saw the film and he he, he altogether obviously um Vincent Price was uh, kind of changed his tune and said, "If I'd have, he'd have spoken to me more about what he wanted, I would have understood better." Mm-hmm. Clashed because he did find it to be an excellent film, but just you know, during they, they clashed for numerous reasons, but also because Matthew Reeves didn't want him at all, he wanted Donald Pleasance, that's what they wrote the part for originally. Mm. No, yeah, I that the other day, it's quite interesting. It would, Sorry, a, it would have been a really interesting, I think it would have been a completely different film with Donald Pleasance. Oh, I, think, I think it would have been a completely different film. Um, because I think Donald Pleasance, he there is. He does evil very, very well, but there is something almost aristocratic about Vincent Price, which sits really, really well with the whole sort of myth and fable of Matthew Hopkins. Because, you know, Hmm. lest we forget, you know, he was a, you know, yes, they've taken a number of liberties with with the character. Oh, certainly. But... Um, you know, he was an evil bastard who um, is responsible for the death of hundreds of hundreds of people. Um, but I don't think Donald Pleasance would have still would have brought that sort of level of aristocracy mm. to it. Does that well, true? It's an, yeah. it's an odd one as well because both of them would have been too actually are too old for the part. Because Hopkins himself, around about this period, was only in his twenties. He was a very young man. Yeah, well, he died, didn't he? In his his thirties. He was a very young man when he died. He died of consumption, which is uh, which is not a nice way to go. However, there is there is a legend that he was tried as a witch as well, which um, I'm not sure is uh, particularly true. But um, it's sort of at least it's more historically accurate than Gladiator. Oh. <laughs> I think that's you know, or Pearl Harbor. Um, oh, don't even start. <laughs> so, Jay, how old were you when you first yeah. saw this one? Oh, um, I think I was actually quite, I think I was in my 20s, to be honest, um, which obviously was only two or three years ago. Um, of course, of course, because what are you, so, 25 now? 22? Uh, 20, 26. 20, oh, um, no, <laughs> it was, yeah, I was in my 20s, so, so pretty late. I saw it on TV, so I probably saw a, a cut to ribbons version. Um, and I, the first time I saw it, it was, it was certainly shocking, but I wasn't that enamored with it it was only actually when i started to watch other films of the folk horror tradition before i knew what folk horror was um that i started to tie the pieces together and i just i I, there's something about the the rurality of all of these films that i just find really unnerving in a really good way yes it's hard to explain Mm. Um, yeah yeah, it it unnerves me but i like it i don't i don't i've no idea why yeah um but, yeah, go on. We we were talking about the sort of the rural, you know, it being very rural and those type of thing. And of course, 
me and Liam being entrenched in deepest, darkest South Wales. Um, oh. You know, where I live, um, I'm, you know, I have, there's semi-detached and terraced housing. Um, my house backs directly onto a river. And opposite yeah. me is essentially um, an abandoned quarry. Um, oh. And then further up, you know, I, I literally walk another, you know, mile in one direction and I'm on the side of a mountain. Well, wow. um, you know, it's, and, you know, but yet I'm 20, I'm 30 minutes away from Cardiff. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of the same. I'm on the cusp of, like, one side I can get to London in 30 minutes. My garden backs onto some downs and there's old kind of Saxon, I don't know if they're burial grounds or just a, an old Saxon homestead or whatever you want to call it. Um, so there's a lot of kind of history around here. And so I can go and walk to the end of my road and cross a gate and then I'm in fields and downs and woods and stuff. And walking by yourself, it's beautiful, but when yes. there's no one else around, well, it's creepy. I did the fatal thing of listening to the... Um, I took the dog for a walk and put uh, the dramatisation of blood on Satan's uh, claw yeah. on. Um, yeah. yeah. And there is a moment where the devil, you know, the, you know, the, the, the fiend's voice appears. Well, mm. let's say I picked up my pace slightly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I listened to that in the car and nearly crashed. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, plane coming in. <laughs> so, I mean, Liam, you're in a very yeah. similar situation to myself. I mean, you were very much, you know, um, you know, surrounded by uh, yes. a, a rural, rural area. Um, and I often find that when I'm out walking, you know, that, that I do often find myself thinking about these films and, oh, certainly. you know, the, the impact that these films have had, I think on, like we said already about television, about cinema. And I think the one thing about all three of these films is there is a very distinctive, unsettling vibe to them. Oh, certainly. Well, I think there's something inherent in the British countryside, I think, which is inherently quite sinister. There's always this, just something under the surface, something just like evil under the surface all the time. You know, you just always feel a presence. Yeah, I think that's always. I think that's yeah. yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, actually. Now, of course, when we're looking at this film, you know, which final general? Somebody once described it as the grandfather of the torture movie. Um, <laughs> and yeah, fair enough. Yeah, there's elements of the yeah, yeah. the the you know it doesn't shy away from any of it, does it? it it's pretty extreme for the time. Mm. Yeah, and I mean Robert Russell, um, who plays John Stern in this, who is this? You know, is is Matthew Hopkins' um, chief torturer, I suppose. Um, and the scene where he has the woman chained up in the cell and is slapping her mm. and te telling her to confess, I found that scene, out of everything in the whole film, really, really disturbing. It was. I think in today's context, it's probably worth watching it. Yeah. You know, he seems to take great pride in the torturing as well, almost kind of lasciviously so. Yes. Mm. Um, none more so with that scene, actually. I find him he's actually I find him a more interesting character than Hopkins in the film because he seems to be highly jealous of 
of Hopkins, especially with his the, the dalliance he has with the with uh, Sarah. Is it I've, her name's just gone out of my head? Sarah or Sarah? Yeah, um, Sarah, the, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then he, and then as soon as he was away, he he rapes her as soon as Hopkins is away he rapes her and I find that they have they have this weird it's almost very slightly homoerotic um and it's probably just me thinking that but I just find because Hopkins keeps him at arm's length all the time you know he wants to call him Matthew and he says no you can't call me Matthew um and as soon as uh Hopkins head is turned he seems to be jealous somehow I just I find that really interesting but Mm. I think it's probably just me yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it does sort of. I mean, if you look at any kind of um, the context of the buddy movie, um, yeah. and this is sort of you know a very um, sort of the you know almost the, the sort of evil mirror image of the buddy movie, isn't it? There is yeah. always that sort of uh, homosexual undertone to it. Uh, yeah, it, you know that the, these two guys are you know, and in some ways, I suppose, if you sort of you really wanted to pathologize their behaviour, um, they're both sexual sadists. Mm. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, Hopkins is you know he, he didn't, you know you could say that he's a you know he's very much the psychopath and that he manipulates uh, mm. you know yeah. people into what he want you know into getting what he wants. Whereas you know the Stern character is very very much the sort of. Um, the you know the the sadist that where he wants to inflict yeah. the pain and he wants to see the pain and he want you know and that's what gets him off more than anything else and it's that sort of Hopkins is the enabler for him yeah mm. you know that's uh, but it's you know and he, I think the, you know the, the character of of Hopkins is the, you know he's the classic fake ultimate hero isn't he well yeah. what I see with him to agree we said about the whole idea of him, you know, being sadists and psychopaths. You also see that element about, you know, the fact that those who are sort of, you know, those people in places of power are quite sadistic and all that, but these are men who just love exercising power on people. Yes. The fact they've, because they, when Hopkins, the real Hopkins as well, the fact, remember when they actually did these, you know, these trials, was doing the English Civil War, a time of chaos in in the country and all that. So they took full advantage of that and and when, you know, they uh, took advantage of people's paranoia at the time, to sort of just get what, just so they could get a bit of power from it, you know, make money from it, you know, purely they wanted the profit from it somehow, oh, and yeah. want, they just like the idea of exercising their power because Hopkins himself, I think his background he was quite middle class. I he think was he a, was a lawyer. He, yeah, he, he was a he lawyer. Claimed he was yeah. a lawyer. Yes. Well, that's the thing, isn't he? He claimed he was a lawyer, um, and his original case, he was only given a permit um, mm. to work in the Norwich area. Yes. That was and all. He was never. And he was never named Witchfinder General. He referred to himself as Witchfinder General. And then sort of took himself off um, and um, sort of just, you know, towns would buy him in. Um, Mm. But he had absolutely no legal power whatsoever. There was no one there to really stop him because pretty much there was a civil war going on. People were more focused on actually him. Yeah. And actually fighting it than sorting out this, you know, this strange bloke who was travelling around Norfolk. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's still a few strange blokes kicking about Norfolk, you know. Yeah, um, but, um, you know, it's just the same as round here, actually. There's a few wandering around that you just think, mm. well, what was it? What was it once the thing as Alan Partridge called um, called Norfolk the Wales of the East? Yeah. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I, what did um, somebody said? Um, uh, I think Russell Howard 
um, was asking the audience where they're from, and somebody shouted Norwich, and he said, "Hey, give me six. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think we've just lost a large portion of our li- listeners on that bombshell. Yes. <laughs> now, Jay, when you're looking at um, which Finder General, what are the things that you know? The, besides, obviously, the torture that we talked about, but, you know, what are the things that stand out for you? What are the things that really sort of jump out? I, I see. I look at it. Um, I try and look at these things a bit more thematically nowadays. I, I see it as um, it's a mixture of superstition, fear, religious fervor, and corruption, all working hand in hand. I don't think that Hopkins. I I don't know anything about him as the the real Matthew Hopkins. I'm just looking at it from the film perspective. But I don't I don't see him as as religious at all. And that kind of really jumped out on me. I see him as he doesn't practice what he preaches in, by no. any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, like when he seduces Sarah, yeah. um, the lines I wrote down was, um, he says, men sometimes have strange motives for the things that they do as a way of kind of excusing what he does as if to say to her, you wouldn't understand. It's fine. Just move along. Just I'll do what I want. Um and that really, that that kind of thing really jumped out on me because I, I and and this is watching it back, not not originally. I, yeah. I'd seen him as very much this kind of religious zealot, but I actually don't look at it like that at all now. I don't think he is. I don't think he's remotely religious. It's just all to do with making money. There's the corruption, and he just enjoys breeding fear from these people in small towns where they've got their superstitions and they've got their god fearing ways, and he can just he can just wield that willy-nilly if you like yes mm. yeah i mean and liam you know what are the things again for you that sort of because um, i know we've touched a bit you know earlier on when we were talking about is about corruption and those type of things what are the things mm. that stand out for you well i can if you put it in the context of when the film was made because let me try to remember what the year was is this 66 it came out 67 i think Round about sixty-seven, yeah, around that mid, time, anyway, yeah. mid to late sixties. Shot, shot in sixty-seven, released in six. General release in sixty-eight. Sixty-eight, right. okay. Well, Thank you, IMDb. Is a, <laughs> well, sixty-eight is a particularly significant year if you think about it. Yeah, because at the time, you know, everyone thinks sixties a great period of like social upheaval and you know, um, great changes in society. And sixty-eight in particular was that year where things really kick off. Because at the time you've got like the sort of in France you've got like the students are rioting, and in America you've got the peace movement. In Britain you've got like some of the hippies as well. Yeah. And in a way you can see for people like Hopkins kind of represent the reaction against that. You know that mm. sort of those people who are like the sort of you know the alleged like moral guardians or the sort of purveyors of like the sort of faith. They yes. sort of represent you know they sort of. Um, they need to stamp out what they see as corruption, pretty much. You know, what they see as being corrupting their society, which usually just represents to them what doesn't fit, you know, what doesn't fit in for them, or what, you know, what they feel doesn't fit what their model of society is. So I'm thinking, in terms of when it was made, it just seems to tie in very well with that sort of feeling which was in Britain, at the, around the world at the time. Yeah. The fact that there was that, you know, that great distrust between those in authority and, though, you know, and everyone else, pretty much. Well, the same year, I mean, 1968, you know, um, Martin Luther King was shot. Uh, mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead was released. Um, yeah. The Vietnam War was... Um, at its worst, probably. It was at its, you know, it, it, was, it was at its peak. Um, mm. You had the, you know, I think you're throwing up at the Tet. Tet the, 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 the Tet Offensive, I think, was 68. 
Yeah, uh, you had the riots in Paris. There was in Italy as well. Yeah, you were, well, you had riots in London. Um, yeah, you, you know, it's it's all and it, again, it, I think horror, horror and science fiction are are wonderful mirrors to mm. what is going on. And I think mm. you're able to tell far more. You're able to tell more stories um, via this way than you would be just straight up. Um, mm. You know, you're able to make far more social commentary in this context than you would be. Um, you know, if you were just sort of uh, ham, you know, taking the uh, taking the more sort of direct route. And I think well, it's, it's far more palatable okay. for people to sort of take that kind of message on in this form. Of course. Well, look at Spain at the same time. Some of the horror films that came out of Spain in the 60s and 70s are clearly reactions to Franco and all that. You know, they always take place in these sort of oppressive, quite oppressive environments. Like, there's one I can't remember which takes place in, like, a boarding school. Like, a boarding school for girls. And it's all this old-fashioned Victorian, highly repressive, quite religious as well. Yes. Which... The pretty much the Franco regime was a highly religious, highly repressive regime, you know. So obviously oh. these were sort of directors reacting to that. So I think a lot of people, a lot of horror films sort of tapped into a lot of the anxieties of the era. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting that actually, because you're edging towards the end of the decade, the sun's kind of going down on it. Um, yeah. And you've got the Summer of Love's over, um, Altamont and the Manson murders mm. are another year or so away. Um, yeah, that's it. That's really interesting. It, it feels like it's it's almost like that perfect storm. It just fell in that right spot. Mm. I don't think that was necessarily the the reasoning behind it because obviously they didn't know what's going to no. happen next, but, and it was made during the summer of love. But yeah, it just happened to fall fall in the right spot. Mm. Okay, I mean, one of the other things we probably mentioned this earlier, but um, obviously we've had a few technical issues, so we may. We may swing back round over a few things again. So if we sound like we've completely lost our marbles and we're repeating ourselves, it's because we have we lost have. our marbles and we are repeating ourselves. Um, but of course, this uh, which find a general also went by the name of the Conqueror Worm um, in the US, and that was to tie in with Roger Corman's um, Edgar Allan Poe films, which also mm. starred Vincent Price. Um, however, this didn't have anything to do with Edgar Allan Poe. To be fair, a lot of the Roger Corman films didn't. <laughs> they, usually had the, they usually had the name of a book and then used that as the springboard for a story. Yeah. So this, Congreum's a poem. You know, Congreum isn't even, isn't even a short story. It's just a, it's a sort of almost, it's a somewhat religious poem. It's almost about angels than anything. It's got nothing related to what happens in this film, though. Yeah. Um, it, that, and like you said, it's quite interesting that they obviously went to those lengths to sort of uh, tie this into those. Jay, have you actually seen any of the um, the Roger Corman films? I ha- yeah, yeah, I, I have. Uh, Mask of the Red Death, um, Tomb of Ligeia. Um, I like the Tomb I, of Ligeia. I, I, yeah, I do too. I've got a couple. There's that a Haunted I Palace, I believe. Haunted well. Palace, yeah. Um, what's the other one? Uh, There's also, um, oh, Pit, Pit and the Pendulum. In the pendulum, there's one more, and I've got it on Arrow Blu-ray, and I've had it forever. I've not watched it. I know it. they did one of them where it was actually an adaptation of a H.P. Lovecraft story, but it was billed as Ed- Edgar Allan Poe because he had more um, the name of Edgar Allan Poe has a bit more pull to it than H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft. Yeah. Nobody knew yeah. who H.P. Lovecraft was at the time. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a massive fan of Lovecraft, and obviously, um, um, it's a St- Stuart Castle. Um, has done the, has sort of uh, brought 
various adaptions mm. um, to the screen for uh, for Lovecraft. And mm. however, have you seen the black and white um, Call of Cthulhu? Oh, uh, the silent film they yeah, made. It's it's so good. It is it's so very good. Good, but with Lovecraft, he's one of those writers who I don't think we've reached the, ad- the like the perfect adaptation of his work because I feel with him doing a direct adaptation of his work in a way does it a disservice in a way because I think one of the keys of his work is the feel of them rather than what happens in them. Yeah. I don't think we've had a director who's really captured the same feel of the books. Yeah. Like I think just to pick because I think even just depicting the creatures sometimes kind of goes against what the books do because a lot of times the creatures are almost unimaginably weird and all that yeah so i think there is more i think with lovecraft there is that you need to capture that sense of hopelessness in there you know that sense of but the characters will come out of this either dead or insane yeah and but and the other thing i love lovecraft but he always and it still makes me chuckle he always had this amazing ability um because the characters would always continue to write I when can hear it by something. Yeah, I, I can yeah. hear it coming up the stairs. It's coming through the door. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, where, do you, where do you stand on it? Because he was a massive racist. Oh, he was a horrific. Yeah, one. he was a horrific so, racist. Where, where do you stand on that? The, the whole separating the art from the artist. He's thing? an odd one for me because I've always found it, especially in recent years, I've always found it a bit hard to sort of you know. Um, get back into him because I learned so much about his personality mm. and this is even for the time he was quite extreme yeah. even for the yeah. time yeah. he was quite considered to be quite people at the time thought he was a bit okay you know Howard that's a bit you know <laughs> you know like, that's a bit ex- <laughs> that opinion's a bit extreme there and he is a hard one he's one of those like yeah, I, some, yeah. there's, some people I can sort of separate there's some people I can't and he's one I'm I kind of flip-flop on occasionally, and I don't know why sometimes. I mean, uh, later on in his life, he did kind he did come round. He, re- he started to, but he sort of died quite, he died quite young, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. In yeah some I of think... his stuff, he started to come round, and he led um, an incredibly sheltered life. Um, oh, yeah. And didn't he really... have, like, an abusive mother as well, pretty much? Like, an emotionally abusive yes, mother. yeah. Um, and, you know, he was... I, I think if he... Today... I would, that, that there's a very, very, pro, there's probably a very strong probability that he would be diagnosed as being on the sort of autistic spectrum. I, there Touch, might be some sort of diagnosis in there somewhere. Yeah. Because he's a very, but if you read about the, you know, what they call, is it the Lovecraft Circle? Yes. Because like, if you look at some of the people he's thrown in with, there were a lot of people you'd be surprised he was interacting with. I can't remember the man's name. He was a young guy, he was a teenager at the time, or what would later have been. Oh, um, did, yeah, didn't he, um, help him get published in and he also got him he pretty much became the the executor of his of his estate afterwards oh who was that he was recently i know he was william s burroughs's professor in university but he was also um well not openly gay because he was a closeted gay man yeah and i think lovecraft was quite well aware of this even if you look at a lot of lovecraft's work he's incredibly homophobic as well as well yeah yeah and it's weird but he had this friendship of a a man who was quite obviously gay at the time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have a bigger no problem. In women. I have a bigger problem with, like, Edgar Rice Burroughs, though. I oh, do have... Edgar Rice Burroughs had that sort of imperialist yes. side. Yeah, yeah, I have a, yeah. a much bigger problem with Edgar Rice Burroughs. And I mean, I've, you know, read the first John Carter novel. Um, mm. And I did find I did find that as a little bit like... Mm, it's uh, getting into territory, which is a bit yeah, dodgy. Yeah, I really don't know how I feel about this. Um, it's a hard start, one. It's a really you hard start, one. Yeah, look, you start look, reading more about him, I think, then you go, ooh, really yeah. don't like his character. 
I mean, the reason I asked the question is only because I, I'd just written something recently about um, films I hadn't seen, and one of them was Polanski. It was. It was Polanski's Repulsion. And as I was writing it, I was thinking, oh, hang on a minute now. This is an interesting character with the, you know, the whole rape thing and, what, and whatnot. Yeah. And I was thinking, if I hadn't seen any of his films, would I watch them now, knowing what I know? And, I, I, and then you get into the whole separating the art from the artist thing. So that's why I kind of... I, posited that and, and i asked the question yeah and yeah i think it's a lot of commentary online and then it went on to the victor salva thing with jeepers creepers and, mm, and Cloud yeah. you know and it, mm. it got into really dark territory but it was just i i didn't realize there was such a a swing both ways yeah, um, yeah. well if you look at poe as well if you actually look read about poe and his own personal views he had some pretty quite nasty opinions yeah. he had a sort of belief in like what they call like the natural aristocracy like he was a strong believer in people you know there were certain people who had to be above everyone else and i think he sort of had very sort of racist opinions i know his 19th century and all that so you know but even he was quite unpleasant yeah. character if yeah. you do read about him there's a lot of these people are very very mm-hmm. unpleasant people the one who really surprised me though who came out actually coming out a bit better was um robert e howard he just happened to be bonkers, though, didn't he, really? Well, we, but the thing with him was, though, he was notable. He was a friend of Lovecraft, even though they yeah, yeah. never actually met. He was one of the only people who called Lovecraft out on his opinions. In their correspondence, he did sort of call him out quite often and say, actually, you know, I, I think... Yeah. I love the story about how he came up with Conan. How was that? I knew he sort of... He was, he he was, was very he, proud of his Irish roots, I know that. Yeah, but he he was sort of... He was sat at his desk... Um, and I think he may have had one or two many to drink at the time. Um, and there was this massive, like, thunderstorm going outside, and then he sort of, in some kind of fever, drunken dream, um, he turned round and Conan was stood over him, uh, holding a massive <laughs> axe, and said that you must write this or I'll cut your head off. Uh, and then he's just stood there, like, furiously sort of writing um, the first Conan story. <laughs> Um, you know, which, you know, we laugh at that, but then like James Cameron had a similar sort of, uh, moment, didn't he? Where he was, uh, undernourished and sort of, uh, trying to furiously edit Piranha 2 that had been taken off him. Um, <laughs> and, and then he ended up tripping balls about a, a um, a, a sort of, uh, an exoskeleton robot chasing him. So, uh, you know, anyway, we've tripped down a, <laughs> down a, down some kind of, uh, rabbit hole earlier on on sort of a, a Corman Poe Lovecraft tangent um, speaking of deeply unpleasant uh, characters um, is obviously we talk about you know Matthew Hopkins in this um, hmm. who you know was a real was a real person um, yes however they, you know they, they have taken some kind of poetic license haven't they really oh, his incredible. age well if you look Vincent Price was I think well into his 50s when they made this and the real Hopkins died at about 27 <laughs> he was a very young well by today's standards a very young man when he died yeah and he died of consumption yeah <laughs> which is which is not a nice way to go no I not mean, particularly and I mean looking at you know the, the, there are so many you know with this film and I think somebody once described this as the um the granddaddy of torture porn. It's certainly up there. You know, I think there might be some films which I'd say are a bit more warranting that title, but it's you know it's got a claim. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I mean, the, the scenes, particularly um, the scenes with um, 
his um, his assistant, shall mm. we say, takes great pleasure in um, slapping the fair maidens around. Mm. Yeah, he's he's my favourite char- character actually in the, in the film, not because of what he's <laughs> <right>. unrelated. <laughs> oh, sorry, on a, on a completely separate <laughs> topic. Here. Um, <clears throat> no, not because of what he does. It's just the the character he plays is I I think is fascinating. He's really conflicted. Um, I know we've. I'm not sure whether this part has been recorded, but I'd already mentioned before that there's a kind of there's a strange. I think, anyway, like a strange homo- homoerotic thing going on between the two, which no one, I think, agreed with me about before, but I'm, I'm going to stick with that. One of the things I will say, though, separate to that, is Robert Russell, who played the character of John Stern, apparently his voice was so high-pitched that they had to dub another voice on. It <laughs> does look a bit strange when you do see him yeah. speak to them. It does look a bit... Oh, yeah. like so I think that doesn't look right you know that voice yeah like, it's it's a, a guy well. a, uh, <clears throat> an actor called Jack Lynn who apparently was also the innkeeper um, oh. or uh, an innkeeper I don't remember him at all in the film but yeah yeah so that's kind of disappointing when I realised he had a high pitched voice I was like oh I don't think it would sort of come across, would it? Really? I mean, and it, and it may, you know, sort of, you know, that sort of, that really, if because he, he's a very gruff, dirty, sweaty, um, sort of very rugged, manly type character. He's a very Sancho Panza looking character. <laughs> and, and if any, if any character deserved his comeuppance, it was him. But <clears throat> yes. he gets stabbed in the sorry, <clears throat> frog in my throat. Although he gets. Um, stabbed in the eye i think the real character lived on and ended up retiring late, later on somewhere it's on a farm or something so he never got his comeuppance at all he died in 1670s he died a long time afterwards yeah. yeah i mean and i mean robert russell actually he's got 83 credits to his name mm. 83 credits um he last i mean he died in 2008 um and i think he was working pretty much right up until the sort of early 90s um I mean, he's done everything, like I said, you know, from Ivanhoe, the TV movie. Um, Very prolific television actor, by the looks of things, as well, looking at his credits now. Yeah. yeah. Um, Bedazzled, the original version, Inspector yeah. Clouseau. Yeah. Doctor Who. Doctor Who, Space 1999. Yeah. Blake know, Seven. Blake Seven. Blake Seven. Oh, God. I love Blake Seven. So do I, but <laughs> horrible, horrible costumes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there well, is nothing so, wrong with a tinfoil hat. <laughs> no, uh, not at all. <laughs> uh, carry on loving, I see. So I, I guess everyone of that era would have been in a carry on film at some yeah. some point. Or I mean, we touched on this um, last time where Liam interestingly brought up uh, Robin <laughs> Asquith, and yeah. I've got to, I, and it's only dawned on me afterwards because we've had a bit of time to digest some of this. Is Liam's knowledge of British sex comedies is. Um, Second it's, to none. It's second to none. Yeah, I'm quite I, uncomfortable. I wish I, <laughs> I wish I didn't know as much. No, it, I, I, just for context, it was originally <laughs> it was a module in university, believe it or not. But we did um, we did the British cinema, and one lecture lecture was on the British sex comedy because the thing we were focusing on is what was pretty much what were British people watching in the cinema in the seventies, and we pretty much established it was Hammer horror films, but the last of the Hammer horror films. Mm. And the and sex comedies. <laughs> well, so well, we did a whole lecture of just watching. We were just talking about Carry On films and then talk, briefly talking about the Confessions films, sort of <laughs> trying to get through those as quickly as possible. And I mean, what is interesting about the Witchfinder genre is, I, you know, there's a common misconception that it is a Hammer film. 
Oh no, it's Tagon, is it? Yes, Tagon. Yeah. yeah. One yeah. Of, they do. They sort of. They were kind of one of the companies which sort of sprung up to sort of compete with Hammer, but they never quite got the same sort of level of fame. Yeah, because the because um, AIP were um, the, were the American backers for this, and hence why they got Vincent Price. Um, and of course, we talked before, didn't we, about sort of uh, Michael Reeves and. Uh, uh, Vincent Price not always seeing eye to eye on set, mm. um, and it's 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 very it's fascinating for me because I, you know I think you know I think this is um, this is one of Vincent Price's um, best acting performances, um, and to see him in this um, in this playing this you know this this narcissistic sort of. Uh, Sort of not. Um, I don't know what, how would you describe. He's definitely a narcissist. Um, it was quite sadistic, and he's you know almost you know he, you know he's quite psychopathic in in a number of ways. Um, also deadly serious compared to everything else he sort of played. Yes, mm. yes, and I mean you do get the occasional little little smile, and the, you know as you do with turn with Vincent Price, and you get that little yeah. turn of phrase. But it's yeah. not that cackling brand no, of evil no. he really gives. But he, he has that kind of Jack Nicholson thing, doesn't he? Where yes. he's like, "Hi kids, it's me, Jack. Mm. How you doing?" Yeah. You know, even though he's playing whatever character, he's just, yeah, he, he's that same type of. He, yeah, you're right. He's got that slight raise of an eyebrow. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, I think we said last time that this was his best role. Um, it'd be hard to argue that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Dr. Fibes. Mm, yes. Um, and, and Theatre of Blood, I think he's great yeah, as well. Theatre of think, Blood is brilliant. It, 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 my, yeah. We watched that the other night and one of my favourite scenes in Theatre of Blood, um, is where he's playing the masseuse. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the most ridiculous. Ridiculous scene, and he's but he just plays it. I think it's only Vincent Price could play that. Yeah, yeah. But well, he is an he is an actor in the film, isn't he? As well, yes. so he's really camping. He plays he comes that kind of from camping. the sort of melodrama tradition. I think yeah. he comes from a sort of very old fashioned. Always, over, he comes from the theatre tradition more than a sort of. He came from the theatre originally, yeah. so he carries that sort of sense of like camp and a bit of. Um, very over the top for mode of acting. He's not. He's not part of that sort of later school of acting where it's more naturalistic. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Donald Pleasant was originally um, mm. lined up to play this. Yeah. Um, which I can't see somehow. No, it's it's hard to, isn't it? Because I mean, uh, uh, Vincent Price's uh, portrayal of Matthew Hawking—it's it, like kind of indelible, isn't it? You can't. Mm. You can't see anyone else playing that role. Yeah. I mean, yes, I'm sure Donald Pleasance would have made a, a good fist of it, but it's just, it, it's Vincent Price's role. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, the other person, of course, who worked particularly with Michael Reeves, um is Ian Ogilvy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I, get, I, I really enjoy his performance in this. I think he's a really, I think he gives, um, you know, he's quite swashbuckling, um, you know, and when he sort of falls apart, he really falls apart, um, you know, and he sort of, he did it, I think he starred in all three of the films that Michael Reeves directed, didn't he? Certainly two, I'm not, I'm not sure about all Because he was in Revenge of the Blood Beast. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, he's in that, and I believe he's in, is it the... Sorcerers, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's right. Sorcerers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. What, my favourite story about Revenge of the Blood Beast is they could only afford Barbara Steele um, for one day of filming. Uh. 
So the producer basically made her work for 18 hours straight. Oh, God. Um, and she didn't speak to him for like something like 26 years after it. I wonder why. I wonder why. <laughs> they're all um, they're all Tygon films as well. As is yeah. uh, the Blood on Satan's Claw. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. So you can sort of say that Tagon were the folk horror company yeah, you know, in some ways. But also, yeah. was this symbol as well? I think they had a, uh, I think they had a, a tiger as a symbol, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. While he also yeah. had, uh, Wicker Man was by uh, British Lion, I believe, so we got a bit of a big cat theme here, folk horror. <laughs> yeah, big, you know, we, we couldn't really find a definition for folk horror, except there's a link between cats uh, in the production witchcraft. company. And witchcraft, yeah. There you go. There you yeah. Go. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Tenuous though it is, it'll do. It'll do. I mean, the the one thing that we, you know, we, you know, we talking, we mentioned on is the sort of um, is the level of violence and mm. you know that scene where they begin to dunk the witches mm. is is so brutal. It's so it's and it's so visceral. You know, particularly when you see the bodies floating. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's particularly horrific about that is I- I've seen films of that ilk where they use dummies and they cut away, but you see them, you know, it's a, that really wide shot of the bridge and you see them being lowered down and, and the strain on the people lowering them. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's horrific. It's yeah. horrible. And, and yet there's, you know, it's not a, a gore filled scene. There's no blood. There's no guts. There's just, these people being lowered down and dunked into the water to determine whether they're witches or not. Yeah. And if they drown, they're innocent. It's, uh, it's horrible. It's, it's not a, it's not a pleasant way to go, is it? No, no. It's not a pleasant way to go in any way, shape or form. Um, and speaking of unpleasant ways, uh, to go is, um, when that lady is essentially just lowered Onto oh, the yeah. flames. Oh, that's, yeah, that's horrific. That's is another it, wide shot as well. It's how lingering it is as well. It just goes yeah. on and yeah. on and just keeps going. You don't know when it's going to stop and you just go and just, just cut, you know, just cut the yeah. something else. I think it's right up there with a Fulci eye scene. <laughs> Not, to, I don't think I find it as, because the, the eye scene I'd lift, I can't, you know, I just, that's one of the things in films, anything to do with eyes in films, really, <laughs> you know. You know, it is that thing which sort of sets you over the edge, you know, that's where you sort of draw the line at. Yeah. yeah. That's the one for me there. But with, um, with, but it is a very, ooh, quite uncomfortable scene to watch. Yeah. Didn't, uh, didn't you stop off for a cup of coffee there at one point, Jay? I did, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's quite interesting just because you, you can, you can kind of sit in the market square. And I, I think I must have seen the film not long before. And I think that's part of the reason I wanted to go there because, um, I didn't even realize. And I was like, where are, where are we? Oh, we're going to Lavenham. <gasps> Lavenham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He runs the market square. Watch the burnings. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's just funny. You, you're watching people just wandering about, you know, enjoying their day as they, as they should be. You're thinking, wow, the things that happen here, fictional and real. Yeah. And yeah. Cappuccino with a sprinkle of chocolate, please. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> now, you could have made a killing if you'd been there during this period of time. In this period of history, get your coffee, ye old coffee. Get Absolutely. your uh, Get your frilly collar on, you'd be away. You'd be yes, away. Yes, it would have been a novelty at the time, isn't it? It was a new world. <laughs> exactly. Marshmallows by the fire. <laughs> <laughs> now, there were... Um, AIP, um, interestingly enough, um, mm. 
demanded um, after the final cut uh, that more sex be put into the film. There this was, was for American audiences, right? Yes, yes. Which I find, I find bizarre. Yeah, so um, they were considered to be quite prudish, weren't they? They yeah. always tend to be quite tight of sense. Well, the Hayes Code, right? I know the Hayes Code was well, long gone yeah. at this point, but they yeah. were still a bit iffy yeah. on a lot of that. They had to go back and uh, insert more boobies um, and a bit more loving. Uh, but I think this, this is the same era as, you know, isn't like Easy Rider came out about a year afterwards? Yes. So I think, you know, you can tell that... They're, uh, I think the distributor's aware of that sort of counterculture audience. So thinking, yeah. how are we going to get them in? So we need more, you know, we yeah. need more sex, I, drugs I, and violence. Yeah, I dare say the British were, were more prudish. Mm. I mean, the BBFC would have been pretty hardcore in terms of not allowing anything hardcore. Yeah. Well, um, they did extensively censor this film, I believe. Well, they, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, I mean, mm. the, you know, Michael Reeves um, even wrote a letter, allegedly, to the BBFC. Um, saying about uh, how this film should not be cut um, and it would be a travesty to cut this film um, and sort of really, really, um, really went to town with it and they still demanded cuts. Um, but the one thing that did um, save, apparently, part of this is that one of the people working at the BBFC time was a distant cousin of the director, so um, they do think that there was a little bit of um, uh, nep- nepotism involved. Yeah, there, I it? think the, yeah. The, the name of the British censor was a guy called uh, John Trevelyan. I think he was his right. name. Yeah, awesome. um, and they were just you know apparently they were cousins. So it, you know there was a bit of uh, a bit of background going on. But oh. it is um, you know it, this is a brutal film and it pulls no punches. Um, you know, and there's. Uh, there's a lot of the, the sort of, um, you get a lot of the Kensington gore, as you said, you know, you've said yep. in the past. And I mean, mm. and th- there's something about that. I watched the, um, what was I watching the other day? I think it was Taste the Blood of Dracula. Mm. Um, and there's something about that, that, that it fits with this time period. Yeah, I think the 60s and 70s, I think. I think they were trying to amp up the violence because if you look at screen violence run about this time, it was being amped up. Look, you know, Bonnie and Clyde mm. was infamous for having such a gruesome ending. Also, um, the year afterwards, The Wild Bunch has yeah. got yeah. one of the bloodiest scenes in like history of the time. So I'm thinking they are trying to sort of they want to amp up the violence. A lot of these these film companies, yeah. so you think the audience wants to see more of it. You know, they yeah. wants to see they I, wants I, to see more gore. Yeah, I agree, and I think the like, the Kensington gore is just that it, it's trying to make that blood look as lurid as possible. Mm. Um, on the screen, if you had blood, the colour of blood, it would be quite dark, and I think it's just to make it really stand out, to really mm. shock the audience. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's where that comes from. Yeah. <coughs> I think because it originally comes from the stage, is Kensington gore, doesn't it? Yeah. It's originally, yeah. Uh, yeah. so on stage, it's going to stick yeah. out more yeah. than uh, if you use a realistic shades, a bright it's- Red blood, that's going to stick yeah. out on... If someone of like a white shirt or something like that, that's really going to stand out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the, they just took that to the cinema and just thought, yeah, that looks great. And it looks great on film, you know, for, from our perspective. Yeah, yeah. From our perspective now, obviously, we're like Kensington Goya. Yeah, it's, it's a bit passe and it, it looks silly, but... It's quite camp. It's very yeah. got a camp value to it. Yeah, but yeah, also, yeah. If you bear in mind at the time when that was first kind of applied to cinema... Viewers hadn't really seen anything in the way of blood on no, the screen. No, 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 not hmm. at all. Not at all. I, I mean, if you think about some of, you know, when you go back and you look particularly at some of the early gangster films, mm. um, you know, um, 
a gun goes off and then some, somebody clutches their chest. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And there's no wound. You can't see anything. Because no. I know um, the Hayes in America, particularly the Hayes Code, was so harsh. Like it was, you could barely depict anything doing the Hayes Code. Mm. Yeah. You could barely get away with anything. Mm-hmm. What? Well, and yeah, and it. it it's sort of, you know, and we go from that, and it's quite interesting actually, isn't it? We go from the, you know, to, to, to virtually, you know, no gore, to the Kensington gore, and now we're mm. in a stage where people are using CGI blood. Um, oh. which I've got to be honest, is a pet hate of mine. Yeah, me I've too. never quite understood it myself. I've never understood a point, because it always looks jarring, it looks very, yeah. it never just, it's something looks wrong about it, it's something just doesn't look right. It doesn't, it just doesn't work, does it? No, and, I think, and I'm not part of like you know the anti CGI brigade because I think you know you can obviously you can obviously do great things and all that you know it's, you just need to, you know how to use it probably. But with yeah. that, it just seems like a very bizarre use of it. It just seems like a very strange use of CGI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and, and however, even though we get the, we, we've got the bright red lurid blood, it actually feels quite real. Mm. You know the you know when they when they're checking for the marks of the devil. Oh yeah. You know that. Oh, with it stabbing. Uh, yeah. The priest in the back. Yeah. That's that's a pretty shocking scene yeah. because that's... you can see the. Mm. Uh, it's not an ice pick, but it looks like an ice pick kind of going into the back of his. It, it, well, straight into his back, and yeah. you can see it going quite deep. It's that's that's that would have been shocking at the time. And yeah. it's probably the scene in the film which really makes me. Squirm. It's yeah, the bit that makes me squirm the most. Yeah, yeah. I, agree. I and it, agree. And it sort of really sets up Matthew Hopkins' character as, you know, mm. the sort of, you know, as the false hero, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. It really sets him up, you know, he, he is, you know, he is, um, you know, he has come into this town as the sort of, um, you know, the saviour, where actually he is a con man, um, you know, and he's just, you know, he, and he is going to get his, his, um, his confession, and it's the fact that this poor guy hasn't confessed. Oh well, we've got to carry on until he does. You know, it's um, yeah. it's it's a you know it, it's a really really dark dark film that sort of. Uh, Just correct me if I'm wrong because I <laughs> I've watched this film a couple of weeks ago, so and my brain isn't what it was. But um, he doesn't commit any acts explicitly. No, no it's all done on his behalf. Apart from the, the, well, the sex scene that you don't actually see where mm. he sees Sarah yes. or Um Yeah, that's interesting. And I, and I only thought about that after. And I was like, you, you look at him as the absolute villain, as if he's actually, his hands are covered in blood. But of course, they're not at all. No. Because he never does anything. He just uses John Stern as his kind of conduit for that. Um, and, and, John Stern's actually almost like the brainless character who just perpetrates his acts, but it's really, I mean, the, the, I, I know we know that he's the villain of the piece, but that makes him even more villainous to me. Well, in the, well that's that sort of symbol of authority thing, a man who doesn't yeah. actually do anything, but he just gives the orders and people will yeah. do it for him. And yeah. that's yeah. quite scary. A man can command that much exactly. power over yep. people. Well, yep. And if we think, you know, in comparison to, you know, uh, Blood and Satan's Claw, The Witch, in which we're going to speak about in a little while, um, oh. there are no supernatural elements in this. However, oh, but what no. we have here is the sort of the evil of man, the sort yeah. of, you know, the, you know, the, the how what happens with fanaticism and corruption 
um, and how cruel, you know, the cruelty of what that people will sort of, you know, the lengths that people will go to, and they can create, you know, that that that, that human beings are capable of creating far darker, more sinister monsters mm. than any witch lurking mm. out in the woods somewhere, or any. Yep. You know, uh, fiend <clears throat> being dug up from the field. Um, yeah, because... it's, it's sorry, go on. Go no, on. no, no, go on, go on, go on. I oh, know, no, no I was just going to say it's like about how um, religious belief can be wielded in such a way as that it, it, it can excuse even the most heinous of atrocities against other human beings. Yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, go on. That was that was really kind of it. Yeah, no, see, that's a really good point. And my wife actually made a cracking point the other day because um, we were talking about sort of um, folk horror and sort of because we, we sort of but we're big fans of Mr. James and you know and, mm. and, and, yeah. and folk horror yeah. in general. Um, and she sort of she made a really really good point is that actually when we talk about folk horror we talk about um, the you know we think of it being sort of you know the the horror of the, the home counties and the dirt and the soil yeah. and, and sort of all folksy kind of stuff. But actually, at the heart of folk horror is folk, as in people. Yeah. yeah. The people um, who live in, yeah. in the countryside in particular. But there is something quite sinister about the countryside, especially, you know, you, when you always enter, like, a village in the middle of nowhere. Do you, you I think a lot of people do have that feeling sometimes that the locals have got that sort of, oh, yeah. like I, I belong here, you know, and I feel, yeah. they're not making me feel welcome. And it is that sort of, you know, and it is that evil, mm. or, the, or what people are capable of. It's in the landscape, pretty yes. much. It's, yeah. Which is uh, which is a really, really clever, you know, which is such a, you know, I never really thought of it like that. Um, and when you think about it, it's quite a, you know, the word folk, people. Um, and it's something, you know, I just didn't consider until she said the other night. And it was just like, mm. that's, a, that's a, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, she's but, in good company because Adam Scoville on the BFI website says pretty much the same thing when he talks about, you know, it's folk horror as in folk and superstition and, and rituals and beliefs and people, people yeah. horror. So it, it's exactly the same thing. I, yeah, I completely buy into that. And as you said before, the definition gets broader and broader as it goes on absolutely yeah 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 and it's you know and you know we you know there are, there are lots of like examples of sort of uh supernatural um folk horror but for me um the more i've sort of looked you know you know watched this film and i've probably seen it in the last couple of weeks two or three times now um it's it's quite it's probably the one that gets under my skin the most mm. It's, and, and as I've got older, it's got under my skin more. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's definitely aligned more with that notion of the horror of people than it mm. is with, with the horror of the countryside. It just happens to be set in the countryside, and the people living there are very kind of superstitious and religious, um, and it kind of it propagates the notion that the enemy is the non-believer and so on and so forth. But it's it's definitely more as I said before about the horror of people and how people are essentially, or or can behave horrifically. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect example here because people do behave horrifically. And I mean, the fact that this, you know, you get this village who've had such a guts full of their Mm -hmm. parish priest that they're going to, you know, essentially they're going to want him to be hung or set on fire or drowned um, or 
stabbed. It's you know, it, it's it's a it's an incredible thing. It is an incredibly powerful thing, you know. And um, you know, yeah. and right from the off, where they're dragging that poor woman up the up the uh, oh yes, and you know they throw the water over. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. it's so it's so dark. Um, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Sorry, Jay, it, No, no, no. I'm just going as an opening scene. It absolutely pulls no punches. I know we've, we've spoken about favorite opening scenes before and I've never included this, but actually it really is. It's just like, this is what this film is about. And we are not going to let you go until the very end. And you're going to sit through and experience this yeah. uh, in a really visceral way. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very yes, unrelenting, unrelentingly, un- unrelentingly miserable. The film is in some way. Yeah. <laughs> yes. oh, yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah. it's a dirty and very depressing film. It's well, a very and, grim and, film. And it could have gone another way with Vincent Price, mm. but he's just he's note perfect, which he has to be yes. because otherwise the the film lives or dies on his performance. And if he mm. got that wrong and he started to do the whole kind of. I, Although we've, you know, we've alluded to the, the raised eyebrow thing, but he doesn't really, if he'd started to do that, then the film would have, would have died a death, I think. Yes. And I think if he'd played the sort of cackling Vincent Price, you know, yeah. the sort of yeah. having fun, you know, you're sort of enjoying watching him being evil. With yeah. this, you genuinely hate him. You yeah. genuinely hate which, him. Which is interesting because he, because he and Michael Reeves, I think we've spoken about before, where, they didn't get on. Oh, not at all. He was kind of left alone to figure out the character. Um, and he said after, you know, if, if I'd have had a, a better relationship with him, uh, we would have worked better together if he'd have kind of directed me and said, this is Maybe what it's I... better if they didn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, but it's interesting because he said if, if he'd have told me what he wanted, then we would have had a better relationship. But because we didn't, you know, that the film came out as well as it did is, is a miracle in itself. But you're right, yeah, because... Well, he did, he did comment. Have... He did say that it was his best performance. I think he yeah, did come out yeah, later on and say that it was yeah. the best performance he's given. Agreed. He, he, I mean, he did. He, he loved it. But it's just interesting that he wasn't well directed and yet he managed to bring that out of it um, and kind I of think... be almost slightly insular. Yes, um, yes. Well, I think that's... That's sort of, you know, one reason it works, because I think another director relationship like that was, uh, you know, Werner Herzog? Yeah. And Klaus Kinski, famously friends, but hated each other as well. And every film they did together, they argued, they threatened each other. You know, Herzog threatened to kill him on one in, in, on one film. Didn't Herzog end up throwing himself into a cactus patch as that well? That was a different film. That was a, that was, um, even Dwarves started small, that was. Apparently one of the actors <laughs> had been hurt. And as a result, apparently he was so upset about one of the actors hurting himself, he stripped naked and jumped into a cactus. But with um, Kinski, uh, you can sort of, the reason why the performances work so well is the fact they hated each other so much. Is there such a hostility to each other, but it fed into the roles? Because I think when they did A Gear in the Wrath of God, mm, um, Kinski, yeah. Yeah, Kinski wanted to play the part as a raving madman, you know, mm. screaming and shouting. Mm. And Herzog wanted him to be quiet and a bit more subtle. Mm. So they kind of compromised, but not in the way Kinski intended. Yeah. So what they did, they filmed ev- they'd filmed loads of takes of him ranting and raving until he exhausted himself. And they just filmed the bits where he was exhausted, and they used that as the final cut. <laughs> so all the scenes of him in the film is him after being like being beaten down by Herzog, pretty much. <laughs> You've got to love a clever director like that, haven't you? It's, well, one. You know, fil- you know, well, another film they did was Fitzcarraldo, where um, 
some of the natives they use in the film actually told Herzog, says, oh, we can kill him if you like, and nobody will find out. <laughs> There's that fantastic dim- the documentary, My Best Fiend, which is about yes. their relationship. Yeah. So, if you, yeah, if you really want to see um, Klaus Kinski going off on one, I suggest you watch that. It's fascinating. You see, I mean, Klaus Kinski is a fascinating, oh, yeah. scary person. lunatic. Person as well. Lunatic. Thoroughly unpleasant human being as well, <laughs> but tremendously watchable as well. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. yeah. What so, a fight. coming back round to this one, yeah. Where do we come in on scores for this one, guys? If I go first, <sighs> um, and I, you know, for me, it's an eight out of ten. It's mm. an eight out of ten. Mm. So you know, I. Unless you want to go first, Liam. I'm... Well, my opinions are a bit more complex on it i put it in somewhere like a 7.5 because it doesn't quite reach that sort of level of you know of being you know where i'd say it's absolutely pure it's absolutely fantastic i think it's a great film but i think there's some things that do let it down i think sometimes it it can be you know the sort of unrelenting miserable not miserableness of it mm. can weigh, weighs me down after a bit you know it is quite I find it a bit difficult to revisit it sometimes. Yeah, I mean... Like, it's, it's one a, of those films, I find it hard to revisit on occasion. Yeah, it's not a feel-good film like Requiem for a no. Dream or... And, <laughs> no, and I feel it's sometimes some bits, some of the elements don't hang together. Like, sometimes the, the budget sort of rears its ugly head sometimes, yeah, you know, yeah. like, you can sort of feel the cheapness in a lot of it. And it's just one of those things, like, those little... There was just those little things that don't elevate it into the sort of pantheon of greatness for me. I think I think it's a good film. I think it's a very very good film, mm. but it has, it doesn't reach that levels of being like absolutely fantastic for me. Mm. Yeah. Um, what technical issues aside, and I do agree actually. I think just reflecting on it over the past week or so. Um, I think it kind of unwittingly ushered in that period of film that became more reflective of world events. Yes. Um, and so, you know, like the, you've got the dark end of the sixties and into the seventies where you've got the last house on the left and so on and so forth, where they're um, kind of reflective of, the, of events like the Vietnam war. And, and Horror becomes more cynical, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this kind of ushered that in and I think it's place therefore is kind of, um, it's almost legendary status off of the back of that, whether it's viewed by, the wider world in that way i don't know but from my point of view i was like wow i'd never really thought about it like that and because of that it's i mean yeah i'd i'd, I'd be hard pressed to mark it under eight i would say yeah i'd I, like i say the same same as liam it's not a film you go back to very often it's, it's just not that type of film and but it is a great film without being a brilliant film yes it's, quite there it's just yeah it's it's like uh the prototype almost like uh yeah like like a yeah yeah a prototype film for that kind of uh reflective horror that would would, would follow it i think that is a fantastic fantastic summation there so we've got two eights and a 7.5 okay up next on the undead wookie we have got blood on Satan's claw. Is disturbed by the plow. The satanic essence of evil wreaks violent and revolting revenge. But it weren't human, sir. There were fur. Then it was an animal's remains. It were more like some fiend. And the evil grows quickly 
attacking first the youth of the village and making them the devil's children. Alf, look, look. Oh, God, I prayed I'd never see that again. That's what they call the devil's skin. Doctor, witchcraft is dead and discredited. Are you bent on reviving forgotten horrors? How do we know, sir, what is dead? Blood on Satan's claw was like a horrible disease, highly contagious and deadly dangerous. Spirit of the dark, take thou my blood, my flesh, my skin, and walk. Holy Behemoth, father of my life, speak now, come now, rise now from the forest, from the far... Blood on Satan's Claw stars Patrick Wymark as the judge who tries the devil, Linda Hayden as Angel Blake, daughter of Satan, Barry Andrews as a victim but innocent. Michel Dotrice as the devil's child, and James Hater as the village squire. Thou stole my master's skin. Thou shalt pay with thine. Oh, I, I think thou could be saved. <laughs> These dogs know how to tear the devil's heel. <laughs> Telltale bitch, thou set the dogs on me. Of course I didn't. Art thou ready to give thy skin tonight? Art thou ready? Blood on Satan's claw. Now, this is from 1971. And it was directed by Peter Haggard. Uh, P.S. Haggard. Oh, P.S. Haggard, sorry. I haven't got my specs on, so P.S. Haggard. It was written by Robert uh, Wynne Simmons. Uh, it starred Patrick Weimark, Linda Hayden, Barry Andrews, uh, Michelle uh, Dutrice, and Wendy Padbury. I mean, it's, it's got a fairly extensive cast. Um, again, it was released in the UK by Tigan British Film Productions. Um, and oddly enough, it was distributed in America by Canon. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, obviously, hmm. this is pre-Golden Globus days. Mm. Um, I would have loved to have seen a cut of that version if they'd managed to get their hands on it. Oh, Jay? Jay, you still there? Yeah, I just got cut off for some oh, reason right. here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. The joys of Skype. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, as I was saying, you know, uh, released by Canon, I would have obviously pre-Golden Globus before they bought it. Uh, I would have loved to have seen the cut of their version of this. <laughs> oh, God. Chuck Norris as the judge. Oh, God. <laughs> or as Ralph. That would have been just amazing. Oh, dear. You know, a, you know spin-kicking in a tight pair of jeans. Oh, that would have been amazing. Amazing. He would have ploughed that, you know, that, that field by himself. It would have been great. Just a mate. You wouldn't need a horse. Just pulling. I love that he's wearing denim. It doesn't matter. The yeah, it's the seventeenth century. Still running around in denim. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I digress. You know, this um, again was made very, very low budget. Um, the, the budget for this was between a hundred thousand and eighty-two thousand, uh, between eighty-two thousand and a hundred thousand pounds. 
So, you know, these are films that are made for, you know, in comparison to budgets today, where they say six, seven million is a small budget film. Um, these are almost micro budgets in comparison. Mm. Mm. Well, they were essentially B movies at the time, really. These were ma- mainly meant to be off more often than not the B picture for something else. Yeah. yeah. So they obviously would have been filmed on the cheap and quite quickly as well, like to be filmed in a few weeks. Yeah. Now, for me, um, one of the things that I noticed immediately about this film is how everything is shot from uh, a low angle. Everything With, is, yeah. gr- is ground I level. I think Mark Atis pointed this out as well. It's always like it's a worm's eye view almost. You know, there's always yeah. it's tying back into, you know, like the evil coming from, you know, below the surface and all that. It always is like this because it, well, the whole plot is the fact they find, you know, more or less find the devil in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that ties into the fact there always something's always watching you from the bottom, you know, from under the surface. Like there's always something there. Yeah. So, Jay, where did you first come across this one? Um, this one would have been a bit later, I guess, probably, probably about 30. I, I, you know, I don't genuinely remember the first time I watched it, but I will say it is a perennial favorite of mine. I have to say it's got a terrible title, but I love it for it, but it's just, I just think it's a fab. This is for me, one of the purest folk horror films. Mm. If, 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 if I was asked to, uh, if somebody said, um, okay, I want to watch some folk horror, this would be in the top two or three films that I would give them. I probably wouldn't put Witchfinder General. I would put this and certainly um, The Wicker Man. I'm not sure of the others, mm. but definitely. This is this is pure folk horror for me. Yes. It gets the feel a lot better. It's got Absolutely. that tying yeah. in folklore. and, But also I think it's somewhere between The Wicker Man and Witchfinder General in some ways, I think. It's the sort mm. of link between them. You know, it's got the period setting like Witchfinder General. Right, yeah. Yeah, but it's also yeah. got the cult, like in The Wicker Man. So they're sort of converging on each other. But also what makes it different from those is the only one which is actually supernatural as well, which yes. is actually actually yeah. fully embraces the supernatural side of it, yeah. while the other two are very much grounded in reality. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I mean, the you know, of course, everything is set in motion uh, when Ralph Gower uh, uncovers the skull uh, with the eye poking out of the ground. Mm. Um, Mr. James, that is. Yes, and I was, of, yeah, that, someone discovers something they shouldn't. That was something I was just about to bring up as well. Um, is um, m- both me and my wife recently we've been on a bit of an Mr. James binge, um, yeah. and it, it, there is something about that, isn't there? The anti- uh, the antiquarian finding something becoming involved. The you know the, the things not quite as they seem, mm. and, and seemingly good people turn in. You know, something yeah. about about digging, not digging up the past. Yes, um, it should be left dead. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think you know, and one of the things that really surprised me about this is obviously um, is the cast. I think the cast in this are absolutely outstanding, mm. um, and it's it it the for one of the you know one of the most unsettling scenes for me is. Um, when Margaret, uh, Michelle De- Detrice's character, um, who of course would be Betty in uh, Some Mothers Do Have Them, uh, gets her foot caught um, in the in the animal trap. Oh, yes. Yeah. Forgot about that. that it, you know, and obviously, you know, people will automatically, when they think about this film, they think about the rape scene. 
with um, Doctor Who's Wen- Wendy Padbury is one of the three actors in the film who've, who've got Doctor Who associations. That's it, Wendy Padbury, yeah. And yeah. Anthony Ainley, the second master, is the priest. Yes. Also, oh. the little girl who lures one of the characters into the forest is an actress called Robert- Roberta Tovey, who she was, I believe she's uncredited, but she was in the Amicus Doctor Who films as Susan. The well, Doctor's well. granddaughter, and this is like one of the very few films she did after mm. doing that, pretty much. And that's one of the weirdest little facts I know about this. Is this film reason there's loads <laughs> of Doctor Who connections in here for some reason? <laughs> See now, that that you know the, again, it kind of tight, and it's it, that's what makes it all the more unset- unsettling, really, isn't it? You've got the probably one of the Doctor's you know um, more cherished companions being yeah. brutally raped. And in, then, apparently, Piers Haggard said he'd wished he'd toned that yeah, scene down because yeah. so he looked back at it and said, "I made it far too strong." You know, as, as I yeah. went way too far. And then you've got Frank Spencer's missus being mm. caught in a in, in in an animal trap, and then having um, the the her sort of her werewolf skin being surgically removed. Yeah, it's you know it it, it, it this film pulls absolutely no punches um and it's i mean it is just laced laced with sort of um you know symbolism throughout um you know the idea of um corruption uh running through the village that you know whoever this whoever the fiend and i love the fact that they describe it as a fiend comes oh, into mm. contact with this it, it's corrupted and of course we mentioned sort of which finder general was shot in 68 this comes out um, after, in 71, just after the Manson murders. Yes. Um, and we have this idea of young people becoming scary, uh, adults becoming genuinely yeah. terrified of young people. This, I've never thought on, of that link. That's interesting. This Sorry, what me and you were discussing <coughs> earlier, Hugh, before, um, before the podcast, I was saying, while um, a witch finder general is a lot more like anti-authoritarian with its sort of you know, the sort of like political side of it. Um, was it Blood and Saints Claw is a bit more conservative in its sort of message. The fact that the heroes of the film is the judge and all that. It's the symbol of authority. Yes. Of like almost enlightenment authority and all that, you know, sort of a bit more of an enlightened figure. Well, the villains are these sort of like pseudo hippie sort of type characters. So it is almost a reaction to that sort of, you know, the flower power generation and also who were, you know, who were partaking in things like reviving like paganism and all these sort of um, old philosophies and all that, or bringing in like these new religions and all that. So it ties into like the Manson things. Well, in fact, there's now this deep distrust of young yeah. people. So it kind of, rep- I'm not sure if Haggard ever intended it, if that was ever his intention to sort of almost be a bit sort of finger waving towards young people a bit. But, you know, it is, you can sort of see elements of it in there. That's sort of, we don't trust kids anymore because, you know, they're into all this, like a cult stuff, paganism, into you know like their rock music, and like you know they're getting naked, going into the forest and yeah. all that. <laughs> How old would Piers Haggard have been at the time of filming? He was, I think, in his thirties at the time. And I think oh, okay. I remember so, him being interviewed. Yeah, yeah, and, I mean, and he did say apparently he was kind of connected to that generation a bit. So yeah. he had a lot of those sort of ideas in him, but I think a lot of it wasn't intended. But you'd have sort of a more conservative message to it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I suppose it's Robert Wynne Simmons' uh, mm. script anyway. Um, there's something interesting actually talking about the, the, that on the um, DVD commentary. Um, 
where they're talking about what the film is really about. And they, he says, I'm just going to paraphrase it slightly. He says, it's about ancient religions coming out of the earth for a second life, but new religions trying to force old ones down are just as oppressive. Mm. <coughs> well, I mean, so that, you think it's more of a grey area, like a moral grey area, in there, but yeah. they're both kind of as bad as each other to a degree. Yeah. So I don't know whether that's just a completely anti-religious statement. It's just, it's interesting given what you say about, um, the way the characters are lined up and the, the, the possible themes that it's, it's this is the folk horror thing isn't it none of it really makes mm. any sense you just it's, take one now a bit it's yeah. sort of value and world battling each other constantly and they're sort of yeah. in an eternal struggle in a way mm. yeah well I mean it's it, you know and again you know when you look at the sort of um, the older religions versus newer religions that that idea it, mm. you know th- there is that there is a long long sort of uh, you know idea of the you know the sort of particularly within christianity within you know uh, a pagan con- pagan country sort of you know particularly within celtic traditions and those type of things where the celtic traditions became part of christianity mm. you know and you know when you look at some of the older stories um they then become suddenly they, they somehow become entwined you know mm. the, you know the, the you know the mythos of the great flood well that goes mm. all the way back to sort of um, the the story of Gilgamesh. Mm. It goes all the way back to that, and the idea, you know, of sort of um, you know uh, of Soan, you know, or the Samhain, as some people call it. You know, it's you know that it's about again being appropriated. Mm. Easter is a better is, is a is a better example of that. Is that yeah, you know, and you know it's the idea of birth and light and those type of things. Whereas you know again it's you know it's the idea you know the you know to sort of put it in a you know a certain way of going. Oh, you celebrate this? Well, we call it Christmas. How about if we yeah. do? You know, it's that kind of thing. It made it more palatable for people to convert. I think because then they sort of had a better understanding of what they were converting to in a way because if you look at what they have heard of what they call celtic christianity yes. which was christianity's first when it first arrived in britain pretty much and they sort of adapted a load of celtic traditions because they more or less that was probably the best way of converting people and the best way for them to understand what yeah. you know what they were talking about pretty much it made it easier for them to convert i think because they had that sort of transition point yes Ooh. yeah yeah and I mean, of course, you know, everybody who knows me, um, myself and my wife, we were married in the goddess temple in Glastonbury and we had a hand fasting ceremony. Um, and we were the first legal hand fasting for nearly a thousand years within the UK. Wow. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. We jumped, you know, we jumped the broom. Um, it was a... Everybody remained fully clothed, um, which, is a, which is a good job when you see my family. Um, but you know, you know, we had a, you know, we had a pagan, uh, we had a pagan mm. wedding, um, and we were the first. Which, that's the thing about Britain as well. Somebody, I can't remember, it was once said that all British people are pagans at heart. There's always that pagan element in British people. Yeah, just left behind, you know. You know the fact we've kept loads of those traditions, like you know the fact there's like the maypole is still used in loads of different places and all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and it, you know, the, you, you look at costume, you know, when people dress up for mm. the maypole, you know, you'll always see a green man kicking about. Mm. Yeah, and often these people are not pagans themselves. They're not practicing. You know, they don't have any belief. Some of them may have any religious belief at all. You know, some of them might even be practicing Christians and all that. Yeah, yeah. but it's just remained part of the. The sort of DNA, the sort of fabric. It's, you know, it's like I said, it's part of the countryside and all that. It is just sort of there. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I always find it fascinating in the US, for example, where um it's it's largely Christian and yet they'll celebrate mm. Halloween with, you know, real mm. fervor. It's like yeah. one of their big holidays of the year, and I'm like, do you more so than we do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I always find that bizarre. It's great. I mean, I, I love Halloween as much as the next person, but I'm, I just I just find it strange that they do that because where you would it come that from? Where does it, you know, where well, does it come yeah. from? Actually? Well, yeah. I mean, it, I think you know, uh, America is a very is an interesting place, isn't it? In terms of when you look at sort of um, particularly religion, um, mm. and I think. Neil Gaiman really sort of hit on something with with American gods. It's yeah. this idea that religion, uh, you know, was trans. You know, people left um, left left Britain to take their very very sort of um, uh, sort of uh, their fervent belief. They took their Puritan beliefs with them. Um, because they felt that you know they were being oppressed there, they set up their own you know they 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 found in their, this country, but they still bring those you know there are still people who come to the country that bring their old beliefs with them, and then you get mm. this melting pot. Um, so that's why you you know I think they celebrate so you know you know you get you know not in the truest it's sense. the Irish influence yes. coming in I think. Yeah, and you you don't get that true. You know, they don't. You know, they celebrate Halloween for candy and horror movies and dressing up and those mm. type of things. Whereas, you know, it is. You know, it's it's the idea. You know, you know, sowing is. You know, is is about marking the end of the harvest season. You know, it's mm. the sort of. You know, it's the beginning of winter. You know, it, it's it's the. You know, it, it's. You know, it's 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 win. It's you know, essentially, it's the winter solstice. Yeah, you know, it's it's not that sort of, um, you know, dressing up and candy and those type of things. You know, are very much an American idea, um, which is fascinating, really. It's true how how you can take something and appropriate it, um, like the the Christians with Christmas, for example, the the festive season, the the present giving, the feasting, the tree, all of those things that have become kind of Christian constructs. But of course, they're not at all, are they? No, I just no. find that, yeah. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, when we're going down the rabbit hole, though, aren't we? Again, yeah, see, see, it happens. (laughs) It happens. And what's very, very interesting in this is where you look at the characters who are in authority within this film, they're not particularly likable. No, they're kind of sticks in the mud, to be honest. They're just these quite quite miserable, quite dull people. You know, Patrick Weimark, who's the judge at the beginning, completely dismisses the whole idea, doesn't he? He completely... Because he's kind of an enlightened man. He sort of is representing the sort of... Because this is supposed to be set around about late 17th century, around about the time of William and Mary. Yes. So about the 1690s around. Yeah. So they were new scientific discoveries and all. I think around about... Either around about this time or not long afterwards, Newton, you know, Newton, the discovery of gravity and all, you know, all, all those sort of ideas were sort of coming in. You know, people were changing their perspectives on the universe. Yeah. So I think a lot of the old superstitions were starting to go. And, and I, think, I think people were embracing new thinking. Yeah. And I think one of the most likable characters in the whole thing is Ralph. I think mm. he is he's one of the most likable characters. Also, that man has quite possibly the greatest set of hair I have ever seen. It's, it's very it's, 70s. It's tremendous. It, it's just, I mean, it's a thing of beauty. And his hat can't fit on it. No. <laughs> you know, and I mean, he, and again, it is the clashing of those two worlds, isn't it? He, just, he discovers the fiend, 
Um, mm. You know, he takes it to the judge who dismisses him. You know, they, and in, you know, then they they find the priest in the bushes with the serpent. Mm. You know, again, it's you know, it's it's that old you know, it's that you know, people are afraid of snakes. There's something in the ground. There's something evil coming out of the ground again. Mm. Um, it's uh, you know, it's a fascinating film. Absolutely. Fascinating, and you know the, the devil. Um, you know he's he's seen as um, this sort of um, this furry, black cloaked beast, it's like a, a horseshoe bat. It looks like. No yeah. way I can describe it. It looks like a bat. Now, Jay, obviously, you you know you sort of said about you know how much. What are the things for you that jump out on this one? Hmm. Um. I t- one scene that I watched it again uh, this morning, one scene that particularly jumps out is quite early and I forget the character's name, um, but she's in bed. She starts screaming yes. and they, um, they hammer the door shut. But when she comes down the stairs and she smiles at, oh God, crikey, the character's names are going out of my head, but she smiles. She does that really evil, slow. Yes. Rosalind. And then Rosalind. Yeah. Yeah. And she, and then you see her hand, and it's the claws, and they do look a bit silly, but you know. Um, and she puts those on the stairs, and then she wanders down the stairs. That that grin is so unsettling. Yes, it's one of for me. Even though you know it's it's not a, a great action scene, there's no blood and gore. That it's just that that moment she just stops and looks at him and smiles, and you know that things are not going to end well. I love that. Yeah, um, it's. I, I think I, actually one of the things that really jumps out at me is something we spoke about earlier, where the uh, the camera's set low, yes, um, and it's almost like we're we the viewer are watching, we're kind of complicit in this. And I just I wonder what what part the viewer plays in this. We see we see these low angles where we're essentially the devil, if you like, looking out, and then we have these high angles looking down. Uh, like the rape scene, for example, and I yeah. was wondering, what, what what part do we play as the viewer in this? Are we? Is it just that's just the best way to set up the shot, or is that there is is there something more to it? Do we play a part? Well, I wonder. Is it the idea of disassociation? Is that we are we are as a you know as a viewer, we are just stepping back, mm. and that we are watching everything fall apart around us. Mm. Um, and that this this idea that you know this corruption has taken place, yeah. um, that this that this this community, this you know this so called um, you know mm. tight God fearing community has suddenly fallen apart, and we're just we're we're just watching. Um, well, like, yeah, I would have thought that if it wasn't for those those scenes with us with the camera set low because we're not really disassociated then we're actually we're, we're, we're complicit aren't we we're complicit yeah. in it yeah um, and you know and maybe it's that idea of you know are we for or are we against yeah it's interesting actually because if you look at it at talking about the the elders as being sticks in the mud and actually the, the the kids being the more interesting characters the ones that you immediately unless you are an elder of that description you kind of take to them because they're more interesting they're cooler they they, they want to have fun and then all of a sudden it kind of completely subverts that and you're like oh mm. i don't want to be associated with them at all no. they're evil i want to be associated with the, the the elders if you like yeah um it's definitely that twist i wonder whether the camera the, the camera it makes it hard to sympathize yeah. with either of them to a degree i think it sort of depicts them all as being kind of i don't know all 
almost extremes of each other. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. the old religion and the new religions. Yeah. Mm, you know, yeah. Fucking horns. And, and what's interesting as well, right at the end, where they have the shot of the of, of of all the young people in amongst it, there are two. There's an elderly couple. Yes. There's an elderly think, couple in the middle of it, and it's, mm. it's you know, and when you think about the most vulnerable, um, mm. the vulnerable uh, elements of society you've got, uh, which are children and the elderly. It's that, so people forgotten about. I think. Yes, and and you know that it's um, you know it is really you know it's quite an interesting you know it's 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 one that you can't unpick, and again it fits in very very nicely, doesn't it, with with folk horror because you can't yep. quite pin it down, no. and I think it the whole film feels like a nightmare. Feels yeah. like a fevered nightmare. But um, set in the most beautiful part of parts of the country. Yes. As well. Yeah. So it completely, uh, it, it's unsettling because you, it, it's, it's spring and it's, you know, the, 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 the summer's coming and it's, the, the, it's warming up and everything is right. And yet, you know, and they, they put all the flowers in their hair, don't they? Around the rape scene. And it's yes. all very, uh, and yet it just, twists it in such a way that it's just you're never you never feel safe despite that it's yeah it takes that sort of that scene because i fit you know i mean it takes that sort of you know like the free love of the 60s Mm. into its most extreme and horrific way you know it takes that that idea into the most horrible conclusion you know yeah yeah go on go on on. it is a dark side of that sort of dream you know of the sort of hippie dream yeah, it's that free love thing until one party says no, and then yeah. it's not free love anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it goes into something a lot more unpleasant. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, I think you've got, you know, and the I think that that is epitomised actually by the character of Angel Blake. Yeah, because mm. is she somebody who is an unwitting vil- uh, victim, or is she somebody who is very, very much part or, or or is she a willing participant you know yeah mm, you know um i i feel like as if that that's something within her and this brings it out there's there's yeah. that she's got that precocious she's element very mischievous she's yeah, a very, yeah. bit of a troublemaker she likes because especially mm. with the priest and all that you know about yeah. lee's character yeah she yeah. sort of likes annoying him to a degree and then she's you know a and I think she's now found an outlet for that. Now she's got sort of that sort of power from it. Now she's finding yeah. a way she can actually use that to her advantage now. Yeah, yeah. yeah and she utilises it all, her sexuality, her mm. behaviours, all of that, but with real abandon and mm. and, and kind also, of malevolent joy. Yes, and also she rejects a lot of society, what society's expecting of her at the time, you know, but she's supposed mm. to be young girl. What she's pretty much expected to do is to get married, have yeah. kids. Yeah. But now she's in charge of this cult, pretty much. She's become yeah. the leader of this. She's presiding over this cult now, and everyone's afraid of that. I think yeah. the fact she is this, she's sort of taken charge. Well, it's the idea that power corrupts, isn't it? An absolute power corrupts, yeah. absolutely, yeah. isn't it? It's the, yeah. you know, it, mm. and what you know when you see that scene where she um, she goes to the reverend's house and she takes her clothes off to try and seduce him. Um, that is a really uncomfortable scene. Mm. Particularly, especially for the fact how old was she at the time? Well, I think you know the actors are old. I think they're all over eighteen. But she is played as being like about sixteen and yes. older. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. She is supposed to be like a teen. Well, what would have been? Well, they wouldn't have been teenagers at the time. But 
by today's standards, you would have been regarded as a teenager. So it is very uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, yeah. and you know that that moment, you know, Reverend Fallowfield, um, he doesn't really. First of all, he sort of there's no like immediate. Oh Christ, put your clothes on. There isn't that moment. There is not is that, that moment. <laughs> I think is... she's playing on his corruption. I think everyone's corrupt in some way, and she it, it's something. If the right thing taps into it, I think we'll all we're all you know sort of all people are capable of doing horrible things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. Yeah, <coughs> yeah. I mean, the other scene as well for me that really made it, I you know, and it was only um, watching it again and how brutal it was is the uh, um, when Peter, the character Peter, hacks his own hand off. Mm. Mm. That's it. Uh, Pretty gruesome. Each and because he goes to town on that thing, he really Mm. goes for it. And then later on at the funeral, where he just raises his stump. Yeah, that is just it's just awful. It's just awful. Takes me back to when I first saw it. I first I would I'd first heard about it through that Mark Atlas documentary. Yeah, and it did. I was quite interested. I was like, I'll seek that out, and I did. And um, I bought the DVD, and I just didn't watch it for ages like it just was on my shelf for a long time never really bothered i don't know why i didn't bother watching it it was just there sort of gathering dust for ages then one summer one of my friends came to visit and we decided to put some films on for the day and i think that was the first film i put on yeah because <laughs> i thought i haven't watched it yet so i'll watch it with someone else and all that and there were some bits of that they were looking in kind of shock in some bits of it they were like ooh, because i think they were they were an experience of a lot of sort of older horror films i think they were quite surprised how brutal it was for the time and how you know, she was quite to some bits of it. Like that's a bit much. You know, that's that's gone a bit. You know, that's gonna that's gone in places I didn't expect it to. Uh, yeah, I mean, it does. Pu- it doesn't pull any punches, does it? No, yeah. it's quite. It's not as <clears throat> other than the rape scene. I don't think it's as strong as Witchfinder General is in terms of the violence. But it's certainly quite visceral at times. Yeah, I think it's got more atmosphere from yeah. a kind of mm. folk horror. Pers- I, I yes. just feel the atmosphere more than I do in. Yes, the general. I think because I, it's which one is general. So as we've already kind of covered, like bleak and depressing, um, it, it's just it just doesn't. I don't know. I, I I can't kind of give myself over to that as the way. It's harder I, to latch onto. Yeah, yeah. Now the one thing for me that I did have a little bit of a chuckle of, where the judge comes back, and he's brought his he's brought the reinforcements. So he's got these trackers with the dogs and then he's not only has he come back he's brought it with him the biggest fucking sword I've seen outside of Braveheart oh the claymore he's, he comes in he's just he comes got in with massive and he impales Satan with it yes it's he huge Satan with a... it's he massive kill... he... how on earth do you kill Satan with a claymore I, well he had a good go <laughs> he, he I know a... but it's like You've beaten Satan with a sword. Yeah, it's the biggest fucking sword I've seen. It's ridiculous. It's just <laughs> it's huge. Bloke in his 50s as well. <laughs> it's quite yeah, it's a fif- bloke in his 50s. With a wig on. Yeah. You know. Oh, with like the most proper 17th century stuff. It wasn't the most comfortable clothes to wear either. It's like loads of layers on him. In the middle of a forest as well. Yeah. <laughs> just literally impaling the devil on it and holding him... Oh, it's, uh, nothing, is as, nothing is as big as Angel Claire's eyebrows, though, at the end. Oh, those are very distracting. <laughs> they are, aren't they? My <laughs> friend, when, they, when when we watched it, I was all my friend could talk about it. I think every time she would come into every single scene, she'd just look at her and go, What's up with those eyebrows? <laughs> just going, 
wow. Every time she came, <laughs> but the thing is, you can see her real eyebrows. I know. It's, I know. The, it sort of splits, doesn't it? It's very yeah, odd. They're, they're not the best, but no, no, it's very right. odd. Yeah. Although I do say, she, I think she's one of the most underrated characters in horror, though. In terms of like horror villains, I think she's very underappreciated. Yeah, she, do- yeah, she doesn't make lists, does she? It was quite surprising, really. I think she deserves to because she, she has a great presence in that film. She's got, she's yeah. genuinely quite creepy. She is genuinely yeah. quite yes. unsettling to watch in some scenes. Yeah, Agreed. and I mean, you know, as an actress, I mean, she's pretty much been in everything from the bill to mm. uh, the upper hand. Uh, she appeared in Run for Your Wife with Danny Dyer. Um, <laughs> she was in true my, horror. Yes, yeah, true horror. She was in Heart to Heart. I mean, she's been all over the place, you know. And but, like you said, I think in terms of villains, she is a great, great just, villain. I, I think underutilized. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think off the back of that, she should have done a lot, a lot more. I'm oh, sorry, I'm just looking at her uh, IMDb. Um, she, oh, so she was in Taste the Blood of Dracula. I knew that already, but I didn't know that she was in Confessions of Window Cleaner and Confessions oh, of a Holiday Camp. Oh, God, that takes me back to university. <laughs> How, right. It's, again, it's one of those things, isn't it, with British cinema at that time. You'd get people appearing in those films who mm. six weeks earlier had been shooting play school. Or, you know, yeah. you know it, they were just, but they made a fortune. They well, made them. a fortune. <laughs> Well, with Confessions, the weirdest one of that is, you know, Robin Asquith himself. Yeah. Yes. We think of him now as purely like the Confessions films. Yeah. His, one of his first films is If, which is one of my favourite films, but it's a proper, like, this anti-establishment art film. And Robin Asquith's in it. There's a small part in it, but it just feels weird to me that, you know, in a few years' time, he's doing the Confessions films. Yeah. I know, I know. Oh, this is strange. I love a bit of <laughs> Oh, we, we did those in university at one point, we did... Then we did a lecture on the British sex comedy. Because you sort of said, to understand what British people were watching, you had to talk about the sex comedy, because that's what British people were going to see. And we realised one thing, that the carry-on films, are, you know, they are genuinely quite funny, some of them are, but, yeah. but the confessions, I just did not understand it. I just did not understand well, what was funny about them. They would do three takes of every sex scene. Mm. They would do a take uh, for the UK, yeah. where there would be just a bit of bum showing and maybe a bit of bra strap. They would then do a shot, they would do one for um, the US audience, where essentially it would just be naked backs. And then they would do one for the European market, where it was essentially all in. It was a lot more graphic. Yeah. Just... But they don't... They were sort of sex comedies, which forgot the comedy. You know, they they sort of left the comedy out. I felt I just did not understand. Maybe it might be from my generation speaking, but I just did not understand them. So I sat there going... This is awful. This is terrible. <laughs> yeah. And I was just looking at and the clothes as well. Like, God, the outfits. <laughs> and the clothes in it. I've seen about five minutes of one. Um, that's all I have. He also did the Canterbury Tales and a, uh, an early proto slasher film called Tower of Evil, which I have seen before oh. he did that. Do you mean so it, the Pasolini Canterbury Tales? Uh, I'll have to click on it. Uh, yes. So he had, a, he had a career in art films at one point. <laughs> yeah. And then does... Oh. That's what the British film industry does to you, I think. You can do a lot of very respectable work when you follow it up with something completely awful. You, you, do you can have the most respectable career you've ever had. Or if you, have, if you haven't broken America yet, I think if you break America, you're going to do all right. And he was also in Run With Your Wife, just to, uh, oh. just to round it, it, it off also, nicely. 
It seems to come back to run with you. Oh my! That seems to be where British actors' careers go to die. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Okay. I mean, <laughs> the you know the other thing as well, which I found I was listening to time. I've I've actually downloaded it now. Is the score to this film? It's a very good score. It's an excellent. Yeah. You know, and the the actual it, it was composed by Mark Wilkinson, um, mm. and he'd worked uh, he'd worked at the National Theatre a lot. Um, okay. And it's 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 I think it's absolutely stunning. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, there's a vinyl release of it in 2007, which I'm, yes. I, I, yep. I do feel I may. You mean it to pick it up for a while? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it, it. There is something about it, and it you know it, again it fits perfectly, and the use of flute in it. Mm. Um, and I'd, I never ever thought I'd say that word, the use of flute. Um, but Good band name, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it, yeah. It, it's more uh, definitively folky, isn't it, than the mm. uh, theme to Witchfinder General, which, which is more swashbuckling. Yeah, I think the music for Witchfinder General is brilliant. Yeah, but it doesn't capture that no. play class as the folk horror feel. I think. Agreed. Blood and Satan's Claw certainly taps into it, and I think then The Wicker Man even more so in some ways. Oh, yeah. The two films which yeah, establish the, Wicker, the sound of folk yeah, horror. The Wicker Man soundtrack, like songs like Gently Johnny, are just so of yes. that ilk. Yes. Well, I know somebody who saw a screening of Blood and Satan's Claw in a forest. We projected, they had a, like a clearing that's, set out. That's right. They had a massive they had a projector with a screen, and afterwards they had a band playing the soundtrack. Well, really there is a band, isn't there? There's a group called Witchfinder General. Yeah. Yes, they were a... Are they a metal band? Doom metal, they used to call it, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, they were... I think, fa- I, it's a, I think there's a band called Blood on Satan's Claw as well, which if there isn't a band called that, I'll be very let down. There <laughs> must be. Well, I know somebody who had a band called Wicker Man as well, but it was spelled like Wicker, the religion. Ah. Oh, okay. And right. they used to play around after day in the, in the 90s. Ah. Now, coming... <laughs> See, rabbit hole, here we come. Yeah. Now, like I said, this film is, you know, you know, there are moments in this that are deeply, deeply shocking. But overall, mm. um, it is, like I said, it is a feverish, it does feel like a fever nightmare. And some of that mm. was because originally it was going to be sort of almost like a portmanteau type film. Oh, like um, the Amicus films at yes. the time. Yeah, it was going to be, you know, all sort of um, loosely, you know, it's going to be three loosely connected stories. Yeah, I think uh, he wrote three short stories um, to be filmed. I, I saw that on the commentary earlier. But sorry, go on, carry on. Uh, and and that's why I think sometimes it gives it that kind of feel to it all. Mm-hmm. That sort of sort of you know because some of it you know doesn't sort of quite match up. It's all a bit, yeah. There's some bits which don't seem to go anyway. You know, and like the and like the period of time that travels between the film. You know, somebody walks into a room and then they mention that like it's three months down the line. You're like, what? Well, hang on, what? It's it, it, it's there's no it, yeah. There's there's no sort of passing of time throughout mm. it. Everything moves very very quickly. I think that adds to the eeriness which you get with folk horror is that sort of is that sort of out of time feeling. Yeah, everything yeah. feels like it is out of time. Yeah, yeah. Now originally Christopher Lee was considered for the role of the judge that Patrick Weimark uh, okay. plays, but uh, his fees were too high. I heard Peter me. Cushing as well, but he was unwell. Yeah, yeah. It's a strange one because I'm. I think I could have seen Cushing in the part more than Lee. 
myself. So I think if Lee was in it, I think it'd be somewhat a bit distracting to a degree in some ways. He's far too imposing. He'd be bigger than the devil. Yes, that's the thing. Yeah. I like yeah. with Cushing as the um, as it. I can see because he's got the Van Helsing sort of background. You know, he's played Van yeah. Helsing. He's played a witch hunter a few times. But I think with what I think what I like about Patrick Weimark is that he does sort of come from a tradition outside of horror. Yeah, it's nice to see yeah. someone who isn't part of that sort of stock mm-hmm. company in a way. He was a someone who's a bit outside of it, and I think that ties in really well. He just sort of looks. He is that sort of outsider figure from what's going on, and yeah. he does that. He is that, and he and he carries off that symbol of authority. You know, that sort of the rational world coming in. Yeah. So, yeah. So here we go then. Where would we come in on scores for Blood and Satan's Claw? Who's first? going to go first? Go on. I'll throw my hat in the <clears throat> ring on this one. For me, um, I would say this is a nine. I think it's a nine Ooh. out of ten for me. I, I I think it's a. I think it is a really, really important film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, 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 if, and like you said earlier about sort of defining folk horror, um, I think this is one that you can go back to very, very much and give, and I think it's the pure, one of the purest examples of folk horror. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think the performances of the cast are excellent in it, and, you know, obviously they, they are handling very, very difficult, you know, challenging material. Mm. The budget sometimes does creep up with it, um, but I think everybody within, the, you know, the, the whole, the way that it's shot, the way that it feels, it is genuinely unsettling. And I don't think, and it, it just fits perfectly in, in, into this sort of period of time. Um, and I think it's a great film. It's a nine out of 10 for me. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. For myself, I'd put it in as a nine as well. Cause I just, for a lot of the same reasons, it does get the atmosphere and the mood a lot better than which fun general does. But also I think, what it has going for it on top of that is that Witchfinder General, it does feel like it's the prototype of a folk horror film. I know there's some examples which are also like prototypes of it. Yeah. But this one just hits the formula a lot better. It hits into something like the music is right, the sort of the setting is right, the sort of locations are perfect. And just something about it just it just gets everything right. I think what bumps it down for me somewhat it is that rape scene. I think it's far too strong. I think it is. It just goes a bit too far for me, and it does leave me quite uncomfortable. Actually, you know, I know it's supposed to not. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Yeah. But it just goes perhaps that step too far with it. And I think Haggard even said himself that he felt he went too far, but he got a bit too. It'd be you no know, sort of probably a bit too um, big for his boots in that. Mm. I think yeah. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair comment. So Jamie, where do you come in um, on this one? I, yeah, it's it's hard to to go any lower than nine. Um, as you've already said, it is the purest example. I think. I think even more so than uh, the Wicker Man, because the Wicker Man's kind of con- well, it's, it's contemporary, whereas this mm. is uh, yeah. yeah more of a period piece. And I just I just think it for some reason that that fits better for me. Um, yeah, I, I don't really have an awful lot more to say. One of the the only thing I will say is that I think unless you are uh, unless you have watched anything related to, to uh, folk horror, it's one of those films that's probably still pretty underseen, yes. which is mm. why the Angel Blake character doesn't appear more. Yeah, it's, it's un- I think it's risen in stature in recent years. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the the history of horror program certainly helped that. But unless you're yeah. a kind of horror stalwart, I'm not sure whether 
you you might have heard of it, but whether you've seen it, I don't think it's one of those films that's underrated. I think that's probably the wrong word to use. Mm. A lot of the time, it's underseen. And um, it does. I think it deserves a. I think it deserves a sort of reappraisal in some ways. I think. I think it is being reappraised yeah, in recent there's, years. Yeah, there's there's a, a 4K version restoration uh, due out towards the tail end of the year. So I imagine it will um, certainly in 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 the horror realm anyway. Online and various websites will will um, probably be written about quite a lot again. So hopefully that mm. will be a boost. But yes, nine definitely. It's it's an excellent film. I mean, now you've mentioned the 4K restaurant. It's no wonder I'm skint. It's no uh, wonder I'm skint. <laughs> so it's nines all round for us on Blood and Satan's Claw. Now, next up on our journey through the folk horror woods, we have got The Witch from 2015. What went we out into this wilderness to find? Leaving our country, kindred, our father's houses. For what? For the kingdom of God. Let us pray. This is obviously uh, again. It's a, it's another period piece, um, and we sort of we mentioned very briefly about it whether it's mainstream or art house. Um, but this is our most you know most recent of the films, um, and I abs- I absolutely love this film. And the more I've watched it, the more I get out of it. Mm. Um, Liam, where was the first time that you came across the witch? Well, I'd been hearing about it being reviewed for a while. Like, I think the first time I ever heard about it was Mark Commode reviewing it, because, you know, he's a horror fanatic, so he's going to 
instantly gravitate towards this. But I think at the time I was hearing things that a lot of people, had, a lot of the audience had a bit of a, um, a not a very good reaction to it because it sort of been marketed completely wrong. Like yeah. it had been marketed as a straightforward horror film. Yes. And a lot of people went into it with thinking it was going to be a straightforward horror film. When it t- was more of an art, arty sort of, it's a lot more artistic in terms of how it approached it, a lot more, the pacing's a lot slower and it's a lot less, it's not an action-packed film in the slightest. It's quite, it does move quite glacial. It's got quite a glacial pace to it in some ways. Yeah. But it was one I missed in the cinema, actually. I was really wanting to go see it, but I just couldn't, you know, I, every... It pretty much, it was, I think it was showing in quite weird places at times. Like, it was quite hard to find it in some places. Yeah. And it was only, I don't think it was in the cinemas for very long either. I think no, it, was it was quite a short. It was, about, it was a very a month short or run. So. Yeah. About a month or so. It, was, it wasn't a very long run, so I missed it. So I went a few months, you know, I waited for it to come out on DVD. I went and watched it, and I was fascinated by it, because I found, I, I've noticed there has been this folk horror revival of films like, you know, Kill List, Field in England. Yes. And all that, but there has been a sort of return if it's separate in the wake of the Mark Atlas documentary in a way I think it has sort of come as a byproduct of that yeah but I thought this is one of the most sort of this is one of the films I think has really embraced the subject mm. but somebody described it really well they described the film as it's less of a film and it's more like archaeology yeah, but it's literally yeah. it is almost like a, you literally feel like you have gone back in time it's one of the only films in a historical period where I feel like I've actually gone back in time mm. So, Jay, where did you first come across this one? Um, I, I didn't see it in the cinema either. I'd seen the trailer um, and thought, oh, this looks really good. But, you know, like everyone else, you watch the trailer and you think it's going to be a straight-up horror film. Yeah. Of course it is. I think it's actually I, – I, I think I, – sorry, I do know. I, I saw it on DVD not long after it came out, very much the same. Um, but I genuinely enjoyed it, and I – I do this a lot. You watch a film and halfway through, you don't like, do I, am I enjoying this? You, mm. you know, you sit through it. And it's only when you reflect on it. And this happens to be one of those films that you need a couple of days of reflection to really say, kind of think it through and think, actually, do you know what? That's either terrible or it's, it's an yeah. amazing film. Mm. It's an amazing film. One thing I will say though, is of the three films, it's the least accessible and it's not because yes. it's more yeah. art house. It's yeah. to do with a number of things. It's, the, the slow burn, I don't have a problem with. And I think a lot of films are doing that nowadays. It's the period English. I think that's what threw people for a loop. Yes. Um, but I really like that aspect of it. I, I, I love the attention I, to detail. Yeah, I love that as well. And I, and I didn't think it was inaccessible in so much as I didn't understand it. But I think for a casual cinema goer, mm. they would have gone to see it. Watch, you know, I, they might have gone to see it, the, the latest slasher film or the supernatural thing that's, that's doing the round at the moment. And then gone and sat and watched that and listen to the, the this period english and be like i just i i can't get into this at all and i think it that doesn't goes, make it easy for yeah. you and it goes back right. to the way in which it was advertised doesn't it and if people are, are half expecting to see something you know like a paranormal activity or the conjuring yeah. or yeah. so and then suddenly you're you're faced with period you know um sort of a period english um and a sort of a very very much you know a period drama at times yeah. Um, it, it is going to be it's, it is going to be a barrier, isn't it? Yeah, mm. yeah. And even you know, you look at it um, from a, a, a cinematography and a lighting perspective. It's a really dark, claustrophobic film. They're yes. either in the woods or they're in the house, mm. and when they're outside, it's only in brief periods, and it's all framed around the woods. It's a really it's a difficult film to watch and just enjoy as a as a 
not that you would as a piece of popcorn cinema, but it's no. a difficult film. You really have to immerse yourself in it. Yes. Oh, and, I, and I don't know whether, you know, like talking about casual cinema girl or even the casual casual film watcher, say, you know, where it appeared on Sky, for example, it's not a film you can just sit down and go, right, I'll, I've ordered a pizza and I'll get a beer. And, you know, it's just not that sort of film. You have no. to really pay attention. No, no. And I think, you know, I, I love the way this is shot. Uh, and I'll come mm. on to that in a in a minute. But it, like you said, it's not an easy film to watch. And no. if you and the, one of the things that you really need to make sure that you can do is the sound quality on your TV mm. while mm-hmm. you, when you're watching this at home, because yep. otherwise it can become really really difficult. Um, yep. Of course, this was uh, directed by Robert Eggers. Uh, it was written by Robert Eggers. It stars Anna Taylor Joy, uh, Ralph Inson, Kate Dickey. Um, Harvey um, Harvey Scrimshaw, Ellie uh, Granger, uh, Lucas Dawson, uh, Julian Richens, and I love this. The person who plays the witch. Listen, now this is a real this is a real witchy name, isn't it? Even though she's probably a lovely, lovely lady, and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with witches anyway, because witches are generally fairly nice. Bathsheba Garnet. Ooh, <laughs> that sounds like a folk singer from the sixties. <laughs> How awesome is that? What's your name? Bathsheba. Now that's a right. fucking name and a half. That's <laughs> rock and roll. Um, you know, um, Sarah Stevens plays the young witch. Charlie as Black Philip. Um, that's the goat. And uh, <laughs> Wahab Chowdhury is Black Philip, or the voice in human form. And Axton Henry Dube and Athon Conrad Dube as Samuel. Because, of course, mm-hmm. they're the twins. Um, mm. Now, this is obviously this is this is a film that is has layers and layers and layers yeah. uh, within it, and I think there are sort of numerous ways in which that you can watch this film. Um, mm. And you know, one of the things that I'll sort of you know I'll touch on first, like we've already said about, is about the way in which that is shot. For me, I was hooked on the on the when they're leaving the plantation. Yes. As the cart is coming out, you see that sort of the Native Americans yeah. walking. And that shot for me is absolutely stunning. I thought that was just, that was it. I was hooked at that point. Absolutely hooked. Um, and the cut, the muted colours in it. And, and then when you do get the colour, obviously you get a lot of colour from the firelight and those type of things. Um, and then obviously you've got the, you know, where the baby disappears. Mm. And I think any film um, where a baby is essentially mulched um, and used as lubricant uh, is, you know, you're in for a fairly heavy going film. Mm. Not a cheerful film in the slightest. No. no. You know, that that scene, the the baby snatching scene. Yes. um, they included that in the trailer. And I really wish they hadn't. Yeah. Because I think the effect of that would have been incredibly it would have been staggering watching that for the first time i mean look some people don't watch trailers and i completely understand I luckily i didn't watch the trailer for this one actually i only heard about it so there you go so the first time you saw that you'd been like whoa and and Mm. i'd seen it in the trailer so i knew what was going to happen i was more interested in what happened to the baby next but i wanted to experience that scene as part of the whole um but fortunately it, it this is um 
what's the best way of putting it? This is not a one watch film. No, which is probably no. another reason why it didn't really take. This is a film, like you said, like you said to you, that has layers. You can't just watch this once and walk away and forget about it unless you didn't like it. If you did like it, it's a film that you watch again and again and you unpeel the layers because it really is one of those types of films. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you know, the the number of motifs that run through this, I mean, you, you, the, the idea of you've got adult fear of losing their children, you've got failure, you've got religion, um, you've, you know, there's a whole host of things that come to bear on this film. Um, and when you think about it, really, you know, there's six characters essentially in this film. Mm. There's yeah. six characters in this film. Um, and one of them's a goat. Um, yeah. It's, um, it's, you know, it, 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 you know, it is very, very claustrophobic. And I think, um, is it Ralph Inson? Yeah, Ralph Inson as yeah. the father. Yeah, from The it. Office. That's one of the things that kind of He's... distracted me when I first saw it. <laughs> Yeah, he's brilliant. Is he? He's yes. like the go-to Dow and Northerner, isn't he? Yes, he's perfect. He's absolutely mm. brilliant in this, and of course, you know, and I think Anna Taylor Joy um, is very, very good as Thomason. She's yeah. really, yeah. really good in this. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason why I would think I was so, you know, going off on another tangent, why I was so disappointed with Split um, is because she's a much better actress than that than that material. Mm. She needs a, better material. Yeah. yeah, and she needs a better director. Um, um, but I thought, you know, and again, the mother in this is, um, she's absolutely, you know, Kate Dickey is just, she's terrifying. Mm. She just looks like she is about to break at any moment. Which she brought from Game of Thrones as well, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes, she did. Yeah. You know, and the other two, and I mean, Caleb as well, the guy, um, you know, Harvey uh, Scrimshaw. He's a he's a great little actor. Mm. He is a great little actor. However, the ones yeah. that I you know creep me out the most were the twins. Yeah, mm. yeah they were just with evil. good reason though. To be fair. Evil, evil <laughs> children. And I think that's another thing is that we and I think we talked about this before, Jay. Is that children are absolutely terrifying? Yeah. I yes. They terrify me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. They're usually the scariest things in horror. Have you noticed how many yeah. films with children are absolutely horrifying? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. They're, they're the ostensible uh, personification of innocence, aren't they? So when they're not, oh, you're, you're not ready for that, are you? You're, you you expect them to be innocent. Because well, the worst one for that is um, one of the worst examples. Have you ever seen um, Who Could Kill a Child? Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, yeah. That's where you get film. to see children at their most. Yeah. yeah. Like I, years and years ago, because um, I've done a few plays in the past, we did a production of um, Blue Remembered Hills by Dennis Potter, mm. which has adults playing children. So we pretty much wipe away any veneer of them being innocent. Pretty much, you know, it more exposes how horrible children can be. <laughs> and they are horrible kids. Yeah. It is, you know, and you, you sort of, you can just see that this family, from the very, very beginning, are doomed. They are mm, yeah. just, they are doomed from the off. Yeah. And it's, a lot of it's their own doing as well. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the, yeah. and it's sort of, I, I can't remember who it was now. I wish I'd written it down. But there is, you know, I think there are three ways that you can look at this film. I think you can look, it, look at it from what it is on the surface level. Um, you know, it's a story about a family who are menaced by a witch. 
Um, and, you know, it is a supernatural horror. Mm. Um, I think the other way in which that you can look at it is from the idea of um, religious zealotry, uh, you know, um, the sort of the father, you know, this is religion um, sort of being the downfall of this family. They're, they're sort of well, pu- he's more, he's too puritanical for the Puritans. Yes, so he's, he's he's even more extreme than the Puritans are, yes. and he's and been it, kicked out because he's too extreme. And it's yeah. and 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 this idea actually that all of the family have sin, mm. every single one of them has sin. Um, so you have the father who's sin, and then he confesses, and it's a brilliant scene where he breaks down um, mm. about his pride, about his pride and his idolatry. Um, and, you know, the fact that he lies to his wife about the silver cup. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you know, the, the wife's questioning then in the, in, in, of the husband in, within her beliefs. Um, you know, because obviously the Puritans, you know, the, far, you know, the, the, the males in the house were in And her questioning that and hitting him and her mm. doubts and her fears and her fear of, you know, abandonment and questioning religion. Mm. Um, you've got then Caleb who's clearly fancies his sister. Um, you know, which is, you know, there are some really awkward moments in that and he's clearly, you know, sort of, you know, some creepy moments, you know, that sort of, you know, with the sin of lust. And then you have, you know, you've got the twins themselves who are children who, you know, um, are born inherently with sin and they're the ones communicating with the devil. Mm. Um, and then you have, of course, the baby who wasn't baptised. Uh, yeah, about that. That's uh, interesting. So the baby isn't baptized, so of course that baby, you know, because all, all children are born with sin, you know, according to the yeah. to these very very stringent sets of beliefs, and then you know th- that this is the family's punishment, um, and actually Thomason, um, where they start accusing her of becoming a witch, it then becomes this self fulfilling prophecy, and mm. you know she then commits the mortal sin of murdering her mother. And then she's, you know, and you know, essentially she's bathed in her blood, um, and she, you know, then makes the pact with the devil, um, and then goes off and becomes a witch. And I mean, there's a brilliant line, isn't it, um, where the devil appears to her at the end, and he says the line, "Wouldest thou like to live deliciously?" Well, that's a, that's an. It's- that's a great line. It's like, would you it's like... It's one of my most quoted lines in film, I think. I just love the quote. I think it's a fantastic little quote. Would thou like it's, to live de- deliciously? It's so suggestive, isn't it? Yes. But well, what I find interesting as well is it's a bit of ambiguity to how it ends. You know, the fact she sort of embraces, you know, she joins like the coven at the end and she, yes. know, she, she fully embraces the whole, you know, witchcraft and all that. Yeah. And it's hard to tell, is it? negative about it or is it kind of positive because she's kind of freed herself you know yeah. she's, freed, she's well, freed herself of her family she's sort of taken charge of her own mm. life she's become free pretty much now she's um, like it's a fantastic book from the from the 19th century i cannot remember the name but it was written by a um about, you know, obviously about a french writer whose name escapes me but he wrote a book called satanism and witchcraft yeah. and the whole concept was it's a book which is he sort of wrote his history but it's completely ahistorical but it poses a really interesting question. He says, the reasons why people can, you know, went to witchcraft and Satanism in the medieval era, apparently, 
was like an act of rebellion in a way against sort of how society had told them to live. You know, like the women were told you had to live this way. You had to do as you were told. And the peasants were told you have to live this way and do as your master tells you. So they embraced these sort of things as almost like a, an act of rebellion, you know, as this act of reclaiming their lives somewhat. So I'm thinking, is that sort of what she's doing there? She's sort of reclaiming herself as a person. Well, yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. And I mean, the you know, the other, um, and I can't take any credit for this, but I can't remember who this, so I'm paraphrasing, um, is, is in the title, which you give mm. it, is a New England folktale. Mm. Yes. So is it the idea that from the second that they leave the plantation, this is a story being told by other people from mm. from the village? Yeah. So like this is like a parable to other people, like a sort of warning to everyone. Yeah. Never yeah. leave the colony, pretty much. Now, you know, you have to stay within the colony and all that, and stay. Yes. And yet, know, don't try to get the better review. Yeah, and yet the the ending is strangely uplifting, or literally uplifting yes. for her. Um, yes. And because I, I always saw it as that, I I never thought, oh, well, that's a bit depressing. It, it felt like, yes, yeah, she'd escaped, and apparently, a bit sinister, but... it, it is a bit sinister. But at the same time, she's she's released almost as if she's had to travel oceans to find her way home and this mm. is where her home is but um apparently satanists have said it's a declaration of feminine independence so i'd really yeah. like to hear some uh, female perspective on this actually i think i've heard that there is a bit a few like sort of like feminist critiques in a way which i've sort yeah. of said but i think there's been a lot of like feminist critiques of things like paganism and yeah. Those sort of ideas of, of like reclaiming the witch as a car as like a positive role model in a way because it's mm. supposed to be a woman who has taken autonomy over herself and she's rejected yeah. a patriarchal society because she's more or less said I'm who I am I'm powerful pretty much fear me sort of thing you yeah. know like you know, yeah. I'm not going to count out what you tell me to and I think that's what she's done she's gone I'm this I'm gonna I'm taking charge don't care what any of you think well yeah. it, it, you yeah. know. The fact that she, you know, when the mother is trying, you know, because the mother is absolutely evil to her throughout. Mm. She is really, really, and, and the, the twins are awful to her. Um, and she's pretty much getting blamed for everything, even down to the fact that she gets blamed for the, the, the silver cup going missing. And it's actually mm. the father who's, you know, and he allows her to take the blame. Mm. And then, you know, the mother then tries to kill her. And it's, and I think with obviously her killing her mother, um, it's it's it, it is her becoming free, isn't it? She is free from everything. Well, there's that elements of like almost like she is in like an abusive household, pretty much. You know, everyone in the house. Well, you know, is essentially abusing her. Yeah, and the family going to sell her. Yeah, they are yeah. going to sell her because that was something that they did as well. Um, uh, the Puritan families that when the teenage daughter reached a certain age, they would then sell her onto another family because they had this idea that it would benefit them. Um, to be away from the house, you know, it's um, it it's quite a, you know it's quite a dark it, it, it you know it's a very 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 dark film, isn't it? On every yeah. level. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I mean, you know, it's you know we're talking about corruption. You're talking about you know the the the, the, the younger siblings are constantly you know the, the fact that they are in commu constant communication with the devil, um, you know. <laughs> The father is totally unable to provide for his family. Um, you know, another way in which you could view this is that the entire thing is, a, um, is one big hallucination because the family are starving to death. 
Mm. That's one. There's so many ways of interpreting. Yeah. You never interpret it as literal. You could interpret it as their paranoia because the fact you know that they've let these stories take over their mind. You know, pretty much like they you know at the end of the day they might not even be a witch. It just it's just yeah. they've got this paranoia in their heads and they're just starting over. They're thinking things. You know, they're out in the middle of nowhere yeah. and they're starting to think. Oh, maybe they they start blaming everything on something. You know, they try to. The only way they can rationalize it to themselves is blaming it on like a witch or something like that when it could just be. It's just loads of circumstances working against them, pretty much. Yeah. I've, I've seen it described as, as people living on the very edge of existence, and that's that's completely true, because if you think about it, where they end up, that, that land has never before probably been seen by human eyes, um, and let alone explored. So, I mean, it's very much the new world, and it brings all that, the, the myriad mm. inherent dangers. Yes. And, you know, some of those could be that, yeah, you can't, your crops won't grow here. They don't know any of that. And so, you know, all, everything goes wrong. It's not necessarily just the, this supernatural element. It's the, the, that they can't survive anymore as a yeah, family. Well, they're in somewhere where they, they don't belong really. You know, exactly. they're in a place where they, they shouldn't be there. This yeah. is a, it's sort of a place which is, it's supposed to stay away from humanity. You know, it was never meant for humans to be there. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's what he when it takes back into we stumble upon something we shouldn't have. Yeah, you know it, it, that that sort of you know and like you said that they are living on the out you know um, you know the very very cusp of civilization and that actually the plantation where there is, is a gated guarded community mm-hmm. and they're you know keeping everybody out um, you know and the fact that this this family are trying to plant crops as if they're living in England. And yeah. they clearly mm. don't understand that, you know, you know the, the idea that this land will not sustain those type of things. Yeah. Um, you know, he can't, you know, and the father, even though he's got this big, deep, manly voice, and for all of his trying, he can't hunt, he can't farm, he can't shoot the gun. Mm. Um, you know, he is, you know, he cannot provide for his family. And, well, and, and that's where everything's, and it all starts to fall apart, doesn't it? Well, it sort of deconstructs the family unit in a way. Once again, saying that is the daughter reclaiming her own autonomy. How he's this, you know, he's a man who's very much supposed to fill in the specific role of what a man was at the time. Yeah. He was very much, he was the provider of the family. He was the head of the household. And he can't control them because he's, uh, you know, he can barely control himself, I think. You know, he's a, um, he's, I think he's, there's, once again, the whole idea of control and authority starts creeping up again. Yeah. The fact that he is he's obsessed with controlling his family and controlling, you know, every aspect of their lives. And yeah. As soon as he's out of his control, he starts being torn, you know, he's been torn apart at the seams because he doesn't know what to do with himself then because his whole world's been turned upside down pretty much. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the one thing, the, and, the, and the thing he goes back to time again is chopping wood. Hmm. <clears throat> because that's the only thing that he has any control over. Yeah. Um, and, and eventually that will lead to his demise because obviously he gets, you know, butted uh, by Black Philip and impaled. Um, and then, you know, all the wood that he's piled up over this period of time just comes crashing down on him. Yeah. You know, it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's so... Um, in so many... For a film that is very, very glacial, it's still very vis- visceral, isn't it? I think that's why I think those when those moments do come, they're a lot more hard-hitting. Yeah. The fact that it's been... It's, been, it's a very... It's a slow burn of a film. It's a very glacial, very kind of plodding film in some ways where it just sort of goes on yeah and then suddenly there's something shocking happens you know there's that moment of that genuinely makes you you know makes your jaw drop yeah Yeah. and i I mean 
you know, when you've got Caleb, when he returns from the woods, <coughs> um, and he's naked, and he's clearly been, you know, he's been assaulted by the, by the witch, and he's completely mad. Those scenes, and he's got the apple stuck in his yeah, throat. He spits up the apple, mm. yeah. You know, it's and it's again, it's it's what does what did he desire the most? Because he keeps talking about the apple tree, doesn't he? Mm. You know, and that's that. You know, that that heart. Well, that's that's it. I wonder if the apple represents the sister as the forbidden fruit. Yeah, and the original sin as well, of course. Yeah. Going back to you know, everyone is born in sin. Yeah, which then again feeds into the idea that you know, in the in the Garden of Eden, they didn't have any clothes on, and it wasn't yeah. a problem. And then you know, they commit. You know, he co- commits the sin, and then they suddenly realise we're naked, and then they mm. have to put their clothes on. So at any, yes. you know, and when you look at the turning points in this film, and the, the you know, the, you know, when Caleb arrives, comes back, he's naked. Whenever yeah. you see the old witch, she is naked, and then mm. at the end, Thomason is naked. Yeah. You know, it, and but for like, her, it becomes like a liberating act for her. Yes, yeah. you know, and again, and uh, this is the horrible bit as well when Caleb is dying, and you hear him making, you know, his, his sort of. Um, his sort of almost not confession, but he's, you know, saying his prayer and quote, quoting scripture and what have you. You don't know whether or not he's actually talking to God or he's talking to the devil. Mm. Which, you know, and because, you know, and the mother points that out to herself. Um, you know, it really is a family just imploding in, in, in on itself. Mm. You know, it's, uh, I, you know, this is, just, you know, it is one of those true. Um, it's not an easy watch, is it? No, God, no. So, no. Jake, for you, what were the things that st- stood out for you in this one? What are the, you know, what are the, you know? Well, something that's just occurred to me actually was the, um, so where they're uh, they go out and they're basically out of, out in the elements and they're battling against them the whole time, you know, trying to trying to build and trying to grow and trying to feed themselves. That at the very end, where she uh, Thomasin removes her clothes, she actually gives herself back to the earth yes. and to the uh, to the woods um she she doesn't battle against it at all she's actually the first person to actually just say actually you know take me as i am i'm not going to try you know i'm not going to be cutting down trees for example i thought that was really interesting that's that's just occurred to me a minute ago i my thoughts aren't very deep on that yet because i'm still trying to um it's still gestating but I thought that's so could you say mm. in, like the only way they could survive in the new world was by completely embracing it by sort of yeah. The, way, the only way they could yeah. survive is by giving themselves to it rather than resisting that, it like, that, you know, the colonists did. They sort of yeah, fought that, against it. Exactly. That's that's sort of where I'm going with it, I think. I think that's I think that was the only way for them to survive. They have to they have to essentially issue this uh, Puritan lifestyle and they weren't prepared obviously to do that. Um, in fact, what they they end up doing is they they're so steeped in their beliefs that they anything out of the ordinary is deemed as, as as witchcraft or evil, and they their own religious hysteria turns them all in on themselves. And well, even like the Salem children, witch trials. Yeah, yeah, and even start. their children are uh, you know become, start to become accused, which actually in the end turns out to be the case. So they weren't necessarily wrong. It's another one of those weird folk horror things where you can't quite pin it down. Yes, it um, ends up being a self fulfilling prophecy. I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's answered your question, Hugh. I think I went off on one again. Down no, the rabbit I mean, it, it, you know, it's true. Isn't it? you know, it's very, very much because, you know, you kind of sort of, you know, is it, you know, is it the family's accusations um, that sort of drive Thomason to becoming a witch? Or actually, 
is because by her accepting it, she's you know she's always been the witch all along. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, is it I, inevitable from the start? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or the other and, thing and, is, was was Thomason absolutely just psychotic? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the other thing, isn't it? That 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 you know, the witch didn't come and take the baby. Thomason mm. killed the baby and poisoned the twins and stabbed the mother, and it just so happened that the goat finished off the father. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just glad there's no clear answers. It never gives you any... No, and, that, and yeah. there's no clear answer in there at all. You know, and it's... It is, you know... I don't think this is a film that you can easily break down and sort of uh, yes. pull apart. I don't think it's something that sort of... Um, you, you can put it in a box. You can't say that, you know... In, in the same way you can look at sort of, I don't know, Paranormal Activity, that's a found footage film. Friday the 30th, mm. that is a slasher film. Mm. And I think, you know, in similar ways, you can look at it and say, yes, this is folk horror, but actually, uh, you know, this this could be seen as religious horror. This could be mm. seen as... It's a period drama a period as well. drama. Yeah. It's not that sort of... It's not that well, easy to define. I think, in years' time, I think this will be one of the films of this decade, which will still be studied. You know, people will... Yeah continue studying it just trying to figure out what makes it tick what it represents i think there will be a lot more like an analysis of this film it seems like one of those films that's kind of asking to be analyzed a lot more yeah, yeah. and i mean robert egg has spent five years researching this mm. yeah, isn't he didn't he use documents from the period like yes. he studied actual like witch trials from the period and yeah. Yeah. cases from the time and lots of the, like the um the tech the, the script were lifted mm. directly Yes, uh, I've heard. Isn't it directly direct, quoted from yes. actual, actual like cases from the time? Yes. Yeah. Um, I tell you what was uh, the other thing as well. The thing that threw people as well when it came to the marketing was the double V for which. Mm. The vitch. The vitch. Um, that really, Sounds really. German. Yes, it really threw people. You know, and again, you know, how do you market a film like this? Well, I, as I said before, um, it's a very hard film to pitch to someone. Cause, you know, they've said the 30-second pitch. It's an, the film's impossible to do that. Mm. But I think what makes it interesting is, I tied it back to what I said before, it is like a, an archaeological film. The fact that it has the amount of research you're in it, it is like a snapshot of a period of time. Yeah. You feel like you have stepped back. I think even for, like, his, historians, I think it might be significant for them to watch it, just to sort of, you know, just something... I don't know. It's even voice, you know, it's obviously a fictional story, and the supernatural regiment's obviously ahistorical and all that. But... I think tap, you know, it does tap into a feel of that period and that mentality of the time of how people, you know, believed what people thought at the time, what the family unit was doing that period. It's, it's got, I think it's got a lot of significance in so many different ways. Well, if you, you know, and when you look at like the sort of, the, again, you look at the idea of the family unit turning on itself. 60 years later, that's when the, witch, the, the Salem witch trials were, would take mm. place. Um, and the whole film. Might be even less, actually. Thinks it's around about 1640s. Yeah, I think you're right there. No. I think you're right. Actually, it would have only been about 20 years between us. It's not long before. It says 1630s. 1630s, okay. Yep. So that would have been... So it looks 1630s. Yeah, 1630s, you're correct. Yeah, so that's not long before. It's, you know, and again, it, you know, it goes back to this idea, it, you know, we hold, off, we hold a family unit very, very, you know, as something that is, that sh- you know, is safe, it's home, um, and, and and it shouldn't be scary, but when you subvert it like it is in this film, it becomes really terrifying. And I think you know the most uh, the scene where the 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 twins wake up and they see the witch milking the goat. 
Mm. Mm. That is just that for me. That is one of the most terrifying scenes well, in the film. Going back to the back to the family unit, I think it does show the ugly, a very ugly side of the family unit. The fact you know that there is this power structure within the family, yeah. which is quite you know the fact no one in the family is on equal footing to each other. There always is somebody above somebody else. Yeah, you know those those imbalances within the family yeah. sort of come to a head, and it does show the real, quite dark side of the family structure, especially those very strict family structures as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, has anybody got anything else to add for the witch? Uh, no, no. I think we could probably this could have been um, its own podcast. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to unpack. Yeah, a lot yeah. to unpack of this film. Yeah. So, in terms of folk horror, um, I think it's fair to say that it is one genre that is very, very difficult to nail down. Definitely. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, it's, very, yeah. it's a versatile genre, I'll say. It's very versatile. It adapts itself very well to different, you know, different subjects. Like, I've seen argued and by a lot of people that, in a way, it's kind of hard to call the genre folk horror because there's a lot of things which fit, fit the bill but aren't necessarily horror. You know, yeah. they sort of very much fit the tone of it. Like somebody even said Bagpuss fits into it because that's got a weird and eerie element <laughs> to it. Yeah. I've yeah. seen people argue for Bagpuss being considered part of it because they say there's just something odd and eerie about it. You know, there's yeah. especially like the photographs of the children. There's something very haunting about it to a weird yeah. degree. I, so it's, it's almost more like a feel rather than an actual yeah, like, genre. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I don't it's a think, mood. Yeah, I don't think folk horror really is an overarching genre so mm. much as it's a thread yes yes that, it's like a trend almost which yeah is yeah and, and, and that's that sounds like i'm doing it a disservice which i'm not at all because i think it's wonderful but i, I definitely feel that it it, t- it touches on a, a number of different uh areas you know that, well, that makes it more fascinating to me that does that, the fact. That, that's why it's fascinating to me is that i can't pin it down so well you know where it fits into the the public information films and mm. uh, hammer movies and then you've got um i don't know if folk you know music from the folk, like, music. folk music from the 70s has got that very music, sort of yeah. folk horror elements mm. Mm. you've got the uh, ghost stories for christmas and you've got the ben wheatley films and you've got i don't know if you know of scarf 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 i wanted to get onto this at one point because that is that ties into it. That brings in like all those elements of like yeah. back to hauntology. Then you've got things like psychogeography, which has been directly tied into it now. The fact what right. is people's yeah. relationship to place? Yeah, it's it's expanded so much now. It, it really has. What I like about Scarfa because it's funnily enough is it's stuck in the seventies. The yes. town is stuck in the seventies. <laughs> on a it's really loop. funny, but uh, if you've ever read the book, it's really or, or, or gone on, on the website. Scarfuck. Yeah, it's very funny, but it's very un- it's really unnerving in parts, like terrifyingly so. It's it's so well observed. Well, what I like about Scarfuck is by clearly by you know Richard Littler, I think the guy name his name yeah. is. Yeah. And he's a guy who, he grew up obviously grew up in that generation. In fact, yeah. I did get a quote from him earlier during my research. Uh huh. And he said, um, "This is I was always a scared as a kid. I was frightened uh, of what I fit." What, when I was faced with, you'd walk in W. H. Smith and see horror books of people's faces melting, yeah. kids' TV, including like Children of the Stones, mm-hmm. very old series you just wouldn't get today. I remember a public information film made by some train organisation in which a sp- children's sports day was held on the train tracks. <laughs> one by one, they were they were killed. It was insane. I'm just going to take it to the next logical set, step. What if people learned that it was a good idea to have your legs removed or wash your children's brains? I'm pushing reality into absurd horror but because life was already absurd and terrifying it only takes a nudge 
So pretty much Scarfuck more or less takes all of this to the logical extreme. The fact that the 70s yeah. was this weird yeah. and eerie, a very strange decade when we actually really look at it. Yeah. And you just need to exaggerate it just slightly. And yeah. it becomes absurd. Because you realise, the more you look at the 70s, it is a strange decade. It's this anomaly. It just doesn't... Yeah. It's sort of sandwiched between the 60s and, you know, the 60s yeah. and the 80s. I just and the sort it. of... All yeah, the weird probably. elements from the 60s are left over, I think. Yeah. I think we've just, left it, behind it, a lot of the positives of it and just yeah. embraced the sort of quite sinister it, side of it. It's a hangover decade. It's it's mm. lost. It's it's really strange. I just quickly, um, on the subject of Scarfoot, because I, I typed, I cut and pasted what, what he says about it on the pages. Scarfoot is a town in northwest England that did not progress beyond 1979. Instead, the entire decade of the 70s loops ad infinitum. Here in Scarfoot, pagan rituals blend seamlessly with science. Hauntology is a compulsory subject at school, and everyone must be in bed by 8 p.m. because they are perpetually running a slight fever. Visit Scarfoot today. Our number one priority is keeping rabies at bay. For more information, please reread. Well, I remember the first picture they ever posted. It's a penguin book, and it's a cover of all these oh, people in the most horrific 70s suits you've yeah, ever seen. Yeah. And it's and the title is which you know. Witchcraft for not like it's like um, practical yeah. witchcraft for beginners. Yeah, yeah. How to hurt people? Yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant. I, it, Hugh, if you haven't looked, go on it. You'll, you you will love it. It's I, I am intrigued. I shall be getting. Uh, I shall be looking uh, immediately. You'll be there for hours. Yeah, <laughs> and that's the YouTube, problem. <laughs> check out their YouTube as well. Yeah, because they've made their own like mini public information films. Oh, wonderful! And they are very unsettling things. They're very yeah. odd. Yeah. So, out of um, you know, obviously, we've covered three, uh, three films, three yeah. fairly influential films. I think it's fair to say. Very, very quickly, guys, are there any recommendations uh, that you would like to give anybody who uh, to head on over into the uh, who would like to dive into the folk horror uh, a little deeper? Um, so, Jake, do you want quite a few? Jake, do you want to kick us off? All right. Um, yeah, I, I would. Certainly say um, take a look at Ghost Stories for Christmas because they're mostly M.R. James Ghost yes. Stories. Yes. Um, they're, they're a BBC thing that, that, that started in the late, well, sort of the late 60s, mostly the 70s. They started with, um, what's the M.R. James film about? Whistlan, I'll, Whistlan come I'll Come To You. Yes, Whistlan, I'll Come To You, which is one of the most terrifying things I've ever mm. seen. Yes. Um, public information films if you want to watch those they're all over YouTube I would definitely recommend Ben Wheatley's Kill List and Sightseers yes mm-hmm. um, there's the BBC plays for today Robin Redbreast and Pender's Fen definitely um, I haven't seen the 1989 Woman in Black and everyone really bugs me about it um, so I do see that because I hear it's wonderful and I'm going to watch it at Christmas uh, <laughs> the Hammer films The Witches The Reptile The Plague of the Zombies obviously Scarfolk oh, Plague of the Zombies yes yeah, yes. they're, they're absolutely fabulous. The kids' stuff, obviously, Children of the Stones that we've mentioned, and the Owl Service. So you've got a bunch of different types of. Uh, well, they're they're all that that thread weaves all the way through all of those. Mm. So um, sorry, Liam, if I've stolen any of yours. You've pretty much oh, you've stolen pretty much all my film and TV examples. <laughs> but I think uh, you know one thing. I think Field in England I'd recommend, although that's oh, yeah. quite a difficult one to get into because it's it's yeah. very art house. It's very yeah, yeah. very yeah. much in the art house tradition. But I also recommend some because um, you tend to be mainly sticking to British folk horror. So I'll go for a um, 
because we haven't mentioned any, not many musical examples no. of this. I recommend Wicker Man soundtrack is a must. Oh yes, yes. must yeah. listen to. Uh, as I said, Blood and Satan's Claw soundtrack. Yep. Also, there was I think a band called Pentangle, who were like a folk band oh, at the time, yeah. and they That's, were very much the yeah. prototype of this, or unintentionally. So I don't think they ever intended. Yeah. Is that to be Bert, part of the... Bert Yanch, is it? Uh, was the... I think so. Yeah. Another one I'd also recommend is looking into, um, as well as that, there was a band in the 80s called The Dancing Did. Who mm. were, uh, they were from Evesham in Worcestershire. And they were a punk band, of all things, but they embraced folklore. And they wrote all these strange little songs about... About the you know Worcestershire pretty much and all these strange stories like there were wolves living in Worcestershire like there was haunted tea rooms and things there was like um, there were like Viking, ghosts of Vikings running around and things there was all these very strange Ooh. little stories they're very there's one about the Green Man who's more or less become like an eco terrorist and he's setting fire to bungalows <laughs> and he's, uh, he's planning he's planning to like destroy bungalows because they're encroaching onto his land but another one I mentioned this to Hugh earlier is. Um, Listen, listen to what's known as Ghost Box Records. Just going to say that. Well done. They're directly connected to the whole hauntology oh. thing. And they sort of base their sound on things like the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and public oh. information films. And they get the feel done perfectly. They, all the weird yep. synthesizers and the album covers as well are all based on like old textbooks from the period yep. or like on public information films. And it's always this. It's almost like an alternate reality Britain. So it's like the, it's the Britain of Scarfuck pretty much. Yep. You know, is that... It's that same Britain, you know, it's like this sort of alternate 70s Britain where it's all very sinister, all very, very odd. And that's why I'd recommend really getting into because that sort of gives you just an idea of what what that world sounds like. And also I'd recommend things by like, uh, if you really want to go out there, you know, look into the more examples like connecting to what I've discussed. I'd recommend looking at Mark Fisher's work when he talks about hauntology and all that, some fantastic stuff by him. There's also, um, recommend looking at the psychogeography, maybe not going back to where it starts, it's more about the urban environment. But people like Ian Sinclair, who talks more about London, but he does talk about what the relationship is between people and place. So that directly ties into, the, you can you can easily move that into the countryside rather than, you know, um, than the city and all that. But I'd recommend looking into them as well, because I think they can sort of expand, you, you know, your understanding of the subject or make you see it from another perspective, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, just one more on the on the book front. Um, there's folk horror, hours dreadful and things strange. Yes, sorry, by Adam Scoville, but that's quite hard work. If, and there's uh, a um, a folk horror revival book out now as well, which is right. a um, yes. series, yes. just a series of essays, pretty yes. much. Yes. Um, yeah, no, that's it. Thanks for bringing up Ghost Box Recordings. That's a really good one. You'd like that, Hugh? I'm uh, I'm feverishly scre- scribbling some of these down. I uh, see. Th- there is a reason why we put you two. I would say in a room together, but metaphysically in a room together, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> um, guys, uh, we have done the best part of two hours and twenty minutes. Wow! Uh, so we're going to wrap this bad boy up on you, Jay. The lethal one, Liam. Thank you so much for being on. It's been an absolute pleasure, guys. We will have to get you back on soon. Uh, no problem. It's been a fantastic learning curve for me. I always, you know, when either of you are on, I always feel like I'm getting some kind of education. So it's almost edutainment, I suppose. <laughs> infotainment. Uh, infotainment. Oh, <laughs> that sounds like a public information film. <laughs> exactly. And I think if we did make it, it would be terrifying. <laughs> I kind of wanted to make some actually. I've had some projects in mind connecting to like hauntology and seventies films like so I'm thinking I've been considering making things based in on those old public information films. 
<laughs> well, keep us keep us informed. That sounds fascinating. Yes, it's. I'd love yeah, to do something like that. Yes. So, gentlemen, it's been emotional. Thank you so much for being on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Thanks very much. No worries. Here I am. Thanks. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, our time now draws to an end. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to Jay um, and to Liam. It was great having him back on the show. And Jay, it's always a pleasure. Like I said before, pal, you got to come, both of you, both completely open invite to come back on any time, or I'm sure we'll be back on very, very soon. Um, I want to give a couple of quick shout-outs. Of course, I want to say a big shout-out to my glamorously gothy gal pal, C.L. Raven, uh, Gidget over at the um, Retro Movie, but man, Peter Nielsen, who will be joining me very, very soon over at Retro Movie Geek. Uh, big shout out and lots of love to Daryl and Joel over there. I want to say a huge, huge shout out to my brother from another mother, Mr. Leighton Winston. Of course, to Mr. Gregor Mortis over at Land of the Creeps. Guys, get yourselves back over there and listen to his podcast. It's a, it's a great show. Great, great, great show. And of course, to the Horror Movie Podcast crew, to Jay, to Dr. Shock, uh, to Josh. Thank you so much, guys. Really appreciate when you retweet everything. Um, and again, fantastic podcast. Um, make sure that you check out all of Jay's writing as well. Um, he's got some great stuff. Make sure you follow him on Twitter and the same for Liam. Um, I'll put their little their links in the, in the show notes. So, ladies and gentlemen, our time draws to an end. So it's all that's left for me to say in the immortal words of Count Duckula. Good night out there. Whatever you are. This is Al from Cadavercast. You've been listening to. Done that worky. The back.